This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 254 of the program. Today is Friday, August 14th, and before we get started, I want to take some time, as we always do, to thank the people who make this show possible. Our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which signed up for the very first time to support us this week or increased the monthly pledge that they were already giving us. And that includes Alex, Bryce Barnes, Eric Broder, Fox Scratchdale, Gabby Gita, Glenn Purdom, Joseph Rivera, Karen, Luis Hoff, Lid, Majtaba, Sultani, and Ryan Shelton. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com support, patreon.com humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. We have... An absolutely gigantic show for you today. We'll talk about Donald Trump's plans to dismantle Social Security and how he plans to sabotage the election by kneecapping the functions of the U.S. Postal Service. Also, Tucker Carlson went on another not-so-subtle rant about how quote-unquote demographic shifts should concern Americans because it'll make their cities broke, dirty, and dangerous, according to him. We'll talk about how Trump's team is currently out-canvassing Joe Biden, Ted Cruz, Cruz laughs off a policy that would stop families from going homeless and hungry. Dave Rubin contradicts himself twice in just 25 seconds. Ben Shapiro comes out against wet-ass P-words. Joe Biden chooses Kamala Harris as his running mate, and I'll give you my thoughts on that. The Intercept uncovers a smear campaign against Alex Morse. Also, Shahid Batar addresses allegations that we talked about last week on the program. A QAnon candidate won her primary campaign. Republicans don't know how to attack Kamala Harris, and we'll talk about the K-Hive and how the media feels about them in comparison with Bernie Bros. And finally, we close the week by talking to two more candidates, Melba Pearson, running to be the Florida State Attorney in Miami-Dade, and David Kim, running in California's 34th Congressional District against Democrat Jimmy Gomez. That's what we've got on the agenda for today's program. I hope you all enjoy the show. Since we have so much, uh, let's get right to it. We've previously talked about how as a form of economic relief to newly unemployed Americans, Trump has repeatedly proposed cutting the payroll tax. Now, you're probably thinking, how would cutting the payroll tax in any way, shape or form benefit newly unemployed people who aren't on anyone's payroll? And that's the exact question that you should be asking. And the answer is because Donald Trump doesn't really care about the payroll tax in particular. He knows that this isn't going to help anyone economically, but he has an insidious agenda. He's covertly trying to undermine another program. That's why he's taking aim at the payroll tax. And he's trying to package it in, you know, relief language when... This is going to hurt Americans more than anything. So he just signed an executive order that allows for a payroll tax holiday. But if he's reelected on November 3rd, he is promising to permanently cut the payroll tax. If I'm victorious on November 3rd, I plan to forgive these taxes and make permanent cuts to the payroll tax. I'm going to make them all permanent. 
Now, if you don't know much about Social Security and how it's funded, you may think that that statement from him is just like this benign, innocuous comment that doesn't really amount to anything. But make no mistake about it. He wants to cut Social Security, and that's why he said that, because the way that we primarily fund Social Security and Medicare, extremely popular programs, is through a payroll tax. So if you can cut the payroll tax, then you undermine Social Security, you undermine Medicare. Now, what Republicans oftentimes like to do is they like to underfund government programs, break them, and then use them breaking said program as evidence that government-run programs don't work. So they then apply a solution because big government, bad, and they suggest, you know, maybe a private company should come along and actually handle this program because they can do a better job than government. It's a con. It's a lie. They break the programs because they want their donors on Wall Street to be able to profit off of these programs that are currently not profitable, right? Wall Street has been salivating over Social Security for decades now. They've been trying to find a way to undermine Social Security, but it's so popular that any politician who has attempted to undermine Social Security has failed miserably. Bill Clinton tried it. George W. Bush tried it. Obama tried to cut Social Security, but guess what? Each time this happens, it fails because there is harsh pushback. But Trump is not trying to tell you his real agenda. He is trying to cut Social Security by going about it in this roundabout way. But make no mistake about it, you cut the payroll tax, you undermine Social Security. Now, if you think that Donald Trump, you know, wouldn't want to do something like this, he wouldn't go back on his 2015 promise to uh, protect Social Security. Uh, he already admitted this year that he is more than willing to look at entitlements. Entitlements ever be on your plate? Uh, at some point, they will be. We have tremendous growth. We're going to have tremendous growth this next year. It'll be toward the end of the year. The growth is going to be incredible. And at the right time, we will take a look at that. You know, that's actually the easiest of all things, if you look, because it's such if a you're big you're willing percentage. to do some of the things that you said you wouldn't do in the past, though, in terms of Medicare. Well, we're going to look. We also have uh, assets that we never had. Gee, I wonder what he's talking about when he talks about entitlements. I mean, look, he's he's laying it out there. So if you are an older Donald Trump supporter and you're the beneficiary of Social Security, a program that you paid into your entire life, the president is taking aim at this. And he already, uh, by executive order, signed a tax holiday for the payroll tax. And if he's elected, he is promising to make that a permanent thing, which means that Social Security will possibly go bankrupt under Donald Trump. Now, they like to already suggest, like, politicians, not just Republicans, but on both sides of the aisle, not to both sides of this, but there's this assumption that we have to do something about Social Security because it's going to be insolvent if we don't take immediate action. Except that's a lie. Any politician who says that to you is a liar. Social Security will remain solvent for decades to come, and even after it's not fully solvent 100% currently, then it will remain solvent by 90%, 85%, and so on, right? So it's not like we have to do something, but they want you to think that this program as it is needs some type of adjustment. Now, by adjustment, they often mean either cut at minimum or in worst case scenario, privatize it entirely. We all know that that's what they want, but you have to understand what they're doing here. They're never just gonna say, hey, we wanna cut or privatize social security because they know how unpopular that would be, because people like Social Security. But if you give them an inch, 
they're going to take a mile. If you cut the payroll tax and you undermine the key funding mechanism for Social Security, you end up undermining Social Security. Now, for more on this, we go to John Keeley of Common Dreams, who reports defenders of the program, including the advocacy group Social Security Works, were quick to point out the implication of what the president said and condemned Trump for threatening the program that has kept countless millions of people out of poverty during retirement years or due to disability since it was created over 75 years ago. We just heard it straight from Trump's own mouth. The group responded, if reelected, he will destroy Social Security, commonly known as the payroll tax. Those are taxes paid both by employers and employees as dictated by the Federal Insurance Contributions Act that go to pay for both Social Security and Medicare. Trump's executive order, which seeks to defer Social Security contributions, is bad enough, said Nancy Altman, president of Social Security Works. But his promise to terminate FICA contributions if he is re-elected is a full-on declaration of war against current and future Social Security beneficiaries. Social Security is the foundation of everyone's retirement security, Altman added, at a time when pensions are vanishing and 401ks have proven inadequate, Trump's plan to eliminate Social Security's revenue stream would destroy the one source of retirement income that people can count on. Moreover, Social Security is often the only disability insurance and life insurance that working families have. If re-elected, Trump plans to destroy those benefits as well. As the Trump administration has foreshadowed this kind of move for months, economists on Friday warned again that any effort to undermine the payroll tax would do practically nothing to help struggling workers and families, but everything to sabotage two of the most popular and successful programs in the country. Now, that last point to me is common sense. I mean, if your response to help unemploy people who are struggling during a pandemic is to cut the payroll tax, something is fishy there. Like, the bullshit mechanism in your brain should be going off. Like, there should be red flags that you see almost visibly. Because that is not a normal response. When you see people struggling and they need healthcare. They need economic relief. I mean, you take action in the form of, you know, uh, extending unemployment. And he did um, have some executive orders with regard to unemployment. But I mean, what you have to do is meet the specific needs that they have. The payroll tax is not going to be on the minds of struggling Americans. Like, the only way you would think that this is going to benefit you if you're unemployed is if, you know, when you go back to work, you assume this will lead to you having more money. And sure, if you and your employer pays less payroll taxes, you'll have more money in your pocket, theoretically speaking, in the short term. But long term, you're going to be fucked over. You're not going to be able to retire if he does, in fact, do this, which is why you shouldn't just allow him to do this. Understand the covert agenda that he has here and stop supporting him. Stop supporting people who are attacking the one thing that allows us to retire. So, I mean, look, I've been talking about this now for months and sounding the alarm about Donald Trump's agenda. Like, he's very, very clear about what he wants to do. And you just have to read between the lines a little bit to see that this is about social security. He wants to undermine social security. Cut the payroll tax, underfund social security, then propose a solution to that. A solution. Either privatizing it, you know, raising the uh, retirement age, cutting benefits, something but it's not going to be good and it's going to be something that proponents of social security aren't going to like so i mean when you see this you can't support him like the beneficiaries on social security who support donald trump 
they have to know. Like, you have to let them know about things like this. They have to acknowledge that this isn't just something that could spell disaster for Social Security in the long term. Like, you know, the people who are like, you know, fuck you, I got mine. It's just the future generations we're going to pay for it. No. I mean, if he underfunds Social Security... Do you honestly think it's just going to be future generations? No, there's going to be adjustments to the cost of living raise every single year that Social Security recipients receive, and that's going to amount to a cut. I mean, you, you just have to understand, this is Social Security we're talking about. It's been under attack by Wall Street for decades now. They've been salivating over Social Security. A private company would love to handle this. Don't let them. We saw what happened with 401ks. I mean, the article alluded to it. They're insufficient. They are insufficient. So do you honestly believe that a private company would be better off handling Social Security? I mean, Republicans always want to prove that government doesn't work by breaking government-run programs. But in this instance, Social Security actually works. Don't let them touch it. And if he actually does go through with a permanent tax cut or payroll tax cut, I mean, there needs to be people freaking out taking to the streets because it's unacceptable and you cannot let him get away with this. You know, it's a little alarming to me that so many people are still, till this day, deceived by Tucker Carlson. Even people on the left don't acknowledge the threat that he poses, right? Because Tucker Carlson, quite frankly, is a white supremacist. Bull stop. I'm not accusing him of occasionally advocating for racist things. I am saying he outright advocates for white supremacy on his television show, on national television. And, you know, I'm going to play a clip for you, and you're going to see this, and you're probably going to think, wow, he's really gone full mascot this time, and I'm inclined to say that myself. But if you know anything about Tucker Carlson, he's gone mask off multiple times before because he is a white supremacist. And the thing about Tucker Carlson is that he is a skilled propagandist. So he knows how to promote his nefarious agenda, you know, cross the line just enough to make sure that he still has this platform. But, you know, he gets the point across to people that, you know, immigrants and people of color pose a threat to white America. So in this clip that we're about to watch, he is going to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement. And of course, he's going to do what all conservatives do. He's going to cherry pick a couple of examples of rioting and looting. And he's going to suggest that, you know, these examples here are representative of the totality of the movement. And, you know, it's not about him misrepresenting Black Lives Matter because that's what we expect from conservatives at this point. But what he's going to do is much more nefarious. He's going to say that what we're watching here, the clips that he shows you, this speaks to broader implications about what this movement means for the future of America. More specifically, what this means for white America and the city that you live in. Take a look. Last Thursday, meanwhile, in Portland, Oregon, a city that effectively no longer has a government, rioters threw paint on an elderly woman. What was her crime? She made the mistake of trying to stop them from destroying a building. Here's why this is so interesting. As the mob attacked her, they explained their agenda. Quote, this isn't your world anymore, they shouted. Put your mask on. Boy, does that tell you everything. Meanwhile, in the city of Chicago, rioters have dropped any pretense of ideology. Sure, they'll vote for Joe Biden, obviously, but this isn't about the election. They just want to steal things. And in effect, authorities there, as they are in so many places, are allowing them to do that. Early this morning, caravans of looters sacked stores in downtown Chicago. Here's part of it. Oh, 
country is this? And what's the justification for that? There's always a story at the bottom of these things that the media repeat, allow them to believe it was justified. The pretext for that theft and destruction you just saw was a false report that a teenager had been executed by the police. It was a lie, as it turned out. It usually is a lie. In fact, a 20-year-old had been killed after shooting at the police. Whatever. We're so used to violence justified by lies that few people seem to notice the difference. And speaking of, just this weekend, Joe Biden honored Michael Brown, that was the man killed in Ferguson, Missouri, after he violently attacked a store owner on tape and then a cop. Joe Biden apparently doesn't remember that part. He seems to consider Michael Brown a martyr. It's hard to know who in America still believes these lies. Most people no longer seem to believe anything they hear from politicians. When everything is political, we learn to trust nothing. But one thing that is real and will always be real is the debris left behind. Bullet holes are real. So are burned stores. So are boarded up windows and terrified neighbors. That will always be real. And we have it. So what will be the aftermath of all of this? What are America's cities going to look like a year from now? There's no question people will flee Georgetown. They may have BLM signs in their driveways. It doesn't mean they want screaming BLM lunatics on their streets. They don't. Nobody does, actually, no matter what they tell you. No matter what color they are. No one likes that. That's true for people in Georgetown, in Portland, Oregon, in San Francisco, in Chicago, New York, any other place where order and decency have disappeared. People will not live long with chaos. No matter what they tell you, no matter what signs they put in their yard, they will leave. And many of them have already left. We're about to see one of the great demographic shifts in American history. Unless the insanity stops and soon, our biggest cities will revert to what they were 50 years ago. Broke, dirty, and dangerous. On the bright side, we'll have resolved the gentrification problem. So a lot of college professors will pat themselves in the back. Yikes. So he is just straight up saying the quiet part out loud. And, you know, I don't know how many people were expecting his show to improve and get less racist since the uh, racist writer was fired after he was outed as a racist. But I mean, Tucker Carlson, he knows what he's doing. And before we even get to the substance of this clip here, I mean, isn't he in theory a bad conservative if he does in fact believe that, you know, uh, being a small government conservative is something that we should strive for and having a small government is preferable to, you know, the large government that the left and Democrats advocate for? Because think about this, if you are a small government conservative, then what's the main reason why you think it's so important that we uphold and protect the Second Amendment? So we can arm ourselves and ultimately protect ourselves from government abuse, oppression, and tyranny. So if you're a conservative, then how is it that you're against a movement of people who are responding to state-sanctioned murders against black Americans. Like, most of these protests are peaceful, but in the instances of rioting and looting, as a conservative who believes you are justified in taking up arms and doing violence against the government, if they become oppressive or too oppressive, how can you say that that's not a proportional response as a conservative? If you think that Taking up arms against a tyrannical government is justified. Why are they not justified to riot and loot if they're getting killed? If people are dying 
by the state because police officers are agents of the state so when they kill a citizen that is state-sanctioned violence how are you not on their side how are you against even the violent protests because as a conservative if you are consistent in your you know small government approach to governance shouldn't you be with them i mean Amon bundy is like the only conservative who's principled on this issue who thinks that um you know uh the government can't become too abusive otherwise the citizens are justified in responding proportionately so you know i don't get that but putting that aside i don't know what kind of conservative tucker carlson is i think he'd probably say he's a small government conservative but mostly he's you know a nationalist trumpian conservative um but let's look at what he says here so at first he plays us that clip of a police officer getting hit with something and he says that you know this reaction was you know due to people falsely believing that a teenager was executed by the police and he says that as if it's so preposterous for people to believe that the police would ever kill an, an unarmed black teen but why are people marching in the first place like they're marching because it's so common that police officers murder unarmed black americans i mean look at tamir rice so i mean the fact that he is dismissing their concern which is legitimate i mean it, it kind of shows you what a hack he is but on top of that he says joe biden honored michael brown that was the man killed in ferguson missouri after he violently attacked a store owner on tape and then a cop now for him to say that is absurd to me because first of all michael brown was murdered with his hands up multiple eyewitnesses say he had his hands up and darren wilson still shot him but even if we believe the absolute worst about michael brown and you accept that he's a terrible human being why would you believe that a police officer should be allowed to be the judge the jury and the executioner why should being a bad person being a criminal potentially lead to a death penalty a death sentence for you why is the conclusion oh well i think that mike brown was bad therefore his killing is justified if you believe in justice don't you think that the appropriate response would have been for darren wilson to apprehend him and for him to have due process not for him to be fucking killed i just i don't get the logic here you know, and I've seen this with Tim Pool as well with Ahmed Arbery. You know, if you can prove based on fuzzy, you know, security cam footage that maybe that black person who was murdered was doing something bad, maybe their killing is justified. Maybe their murder isn't so bad after all. Except, no, we have this thing called due process. And if you think someone is guilty, you shouldn't be saying, oh, or implying that that just justifies their death. Of course it doesn't. Isn't it conservatives that say they believe in law and order? Isn't it conservatives who say we should be following the law and the Constitution? But yet, you know, they imply that it's perfectly acceptable to kill unarmed black Americans if you're a police officer so long as you, uh, you know, see them doing something wrong. But here's where he goes full mask off. This is where he takes it further than other conservatives who just try to intentionally misrepresent the Black Lives Matter movement. He says, we are about to see one of the great demographic shifts in American history. Why is that a problem? A demographic shift is something that will constantly be happening throughout the course of humanity because we are a species that is constantly changing, right? So the only reason to be against the demographic shift would be if you're racist. Um, unless the insanity stops and soon our biggest cities 
will revert to what they were 50 years ago. So he says, we're going to see one of the greatest demographic shifts in American history. And unless that stops, we will see our cities revert back to what they were a few years ago. So the explicit implication is that the more diversity we see, the more, you know, carnage we'll see, the more poverty that we'll see in these cities, the more damage to our cities that we will see. Broke, dirty, and dangerous. On the bright side, we will have resolved the gentrification problem. So a lot of college professors will pat themselves on the back. That is... The fact that he's saying this on national television is astonishing to me. He has no shame. First of all, gentrification, the reason why that's a bad thing, he probably think it's a good thing, the reason why it's a bad thing is because you are pricing people out of their own communities, black and brown people most of the time. So that's not, that's not a good thing because you think that there, you know, the more development that we see, that means that society is improving. You're just pushing people into different cities. And for him to say that demographic shifts, greater diversity in America will lead to more, you know, broken, dirty, and dangerous cities. I mean, at this point, I don't know why he doesn't just come out and say explicitly, I think that immigrants and brown people make America dirtier and dangerous. Like, this is exactly what you would expect from a Klan member to say. But yet we have a Fox News host, a serious newsman, saying this on national television. Like, this should shock everyone. Like, everyone shouldn't just become accustomed to this. We shouldn't just think, oh, well, that's Tucker. He's a white supremacist. Like, anyone who sees this should be appalled. This is white supremacy. Because it's only, you know, um, the immigrants, demographic changes that lead to cities being, you know, uh, broke, dirty, and dangerous. I don't know what else to say. Like, what more does he need to say to convince people that he is a dangerous person, that he is a white supremacist? I mean, it's only shocking if you don't know much about Tucker Carlson. But, I mean, what he's saying here is uh, it's really persuasive to people who don't know any better. Like, a conservative who watches this and they see images of, you know, looting and rioting, that makes them fearful and then, you know, that fear makes them susceptible to believing that, you know, demographic changes will, in fact, affect them in a negative way. When in actuality, demographic changes are always going to be happening. Yeah. Disturbing. Deeply disturbing. Tucker Carlson is a white supremacist. So when I say that Tucker Carlson is a white supremacist, understand that I'm not being hyperbolic. This is what I mean. If you are explicitly saying that demographic changes, the shift from, you know, a city being non-white or being white to non-white leads to a city being broke, dirty, and dangerous, and it takes us backwards, that is outright white supremacy. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. So Joe Biden's lead over Donald Trump has actually shrunken albeit by just a little bit, but I mean, on average, he still has a sizable lead over Donald Trump. However, that lead has uh, gone down by a couple of points. But still, based on the current snapshot of polling data that we have, you know, Joe Biden is still looking 
pretty good. He's still leading where it counts in key swing states. Now, I'm not sure if we can attribute that decline to recent gaffes by Joe Biden. It's certainly a possibility. But either way, I mean, when so much is at stake, I get why people are freaking out. But, you know, Joe Biden really did get lucky in the sense that COVID-19 changed the dynamic of this election. Had we not seen an unprecedented pandemic and economic crisis, I think that Trump probably would have been reelected relatively easily. But because of COVID-19 and how poorly Trump has handled that, you know, it gave Joe Biden the edge. But where he has an edge overall in this election, you know, he's at a disadvantage in one key area that I think we should be concerned about if we're looking at, you know, everything with regard to this election. Um, so, you know, typically Democrats and left-wing candidates, they are more organized than Republicans. But in this election, Trump is really out-organizing Joe Biden. And when I say he's out-organizing him, Trump's team knocked on a million doors last week alone. Joe Biden's team knocked on zero doors. Now, that's not to say that they're not campaigning. Like, I'm not saying... Joe Biden has just like given up and said, you know, it's over. I'm going to win anyway. Um, they basically shifted all of their campaigning to digital, right? Now, I've talked to some candidates who are grassroots candidates, and, you know, some of them have just gone all digital. They're just doing text banking and phone banking. Some of them have said that, you know, they're they're knocking on doors still. They'll, they'll have their teams, you know, knock on a door and then jump back six feet, you know, but it depends on the amount of resources that you have. If you're able to hire enough people to do that when you're really focusing on, you know, digital canvassing. But I mean, Trump's team is finding a way to campaign during a pandemic and knock on doors. And those personal contacts that they're making, that really could change a lot here, which is why I'm not willing to say that Joe Biden's victory here is a foregone conclusion. And that in combination with the slight dip should have people worried. So as Alex Thompson of Politico reports, Donald Trump's campaign says it knocked on over 1 million doors in the past week alone. Joe Biden's campaign says it knocked on zero. Biden and the Democratic National Committee aren't sending volunteers or staffers to talk with voters at home and don't anticipate doing anything more than dropping off literature unless the crisis abates. The campaign and the Democratic National Committee think they can compensate for the lack of in-person canvassing with phone calls, texts, new forms of digital organizing, and virtual meetups with voters. At first, I was nervous, but our response rates on phone calls and texts are much higher and people are not necessarily wanting someone to go up to their door right now, said Jen Ritter, Biden's national states director. You get to throw a lot of the rule book out the window and try out new things. Trump and the Republican National Committee, in contrast, started deploying mask-wearing field staffers and volunteers to the streets in June. The GOP quickly ramped up and now claims more than a million doors a week despite COVID-19 surges across the country, including in swing states like Arizona. Republicans say their door-knocking dominance could make a difference in November, since in-person conversations have long been considered the most effective type of voter contact. From now to Election Day, Voters may only see one campaign at their doors, said Elliot Eccles, the RNC's national field director. If this were Barack Obama running, Democrats would want to be out there knocking doors. They don't have enthusiasm or a strong field operation, so it is a convenient excuse. We can do this safely for President Trump and Republicans up and down the ballot. Now, what they're saying here, I find to be relatively persuasive. There is an enthusiasm gap between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Joe Biden's supporters, or people who are voting for Joe Biden, aren't enthusiastic about him, but Donald Trump has more enthusiasm. Now, enthusiasm doesn't necessarily translate into votes, but is it one thing that we should definitely look at? Absolutely. Now, 
you know, the reason why Joe Biden's team isn't doing in-person canvassing, I don't blame them for that necessarily. I think that during a pandemic, I get the the worry there. Like, if I were a, a politician running for Congress, I wouldn't feel comfortable sending my team to knock on doors. Like, even if they wear a mask and they step, you know, six feet back, I mean, I don't know the risk that that poses to their health. I don't know that I want that I would want to jeopardize their personal safety. So it's it's tough, right? But Donald Trump and his team, they're much more ruthless. They want to win by all means necessary and conservatives generally speaking don't take this as seriously. So their team probably has no problem whatsoever knocking on doors and that could give them the advantage because as they say here, you know, this is like this in-person canvassing. This really is what persuades people when you have these in-person conversations it changes the game because like it's a lot easier to dismiss someone over the phone if you can't see their face but when you actually see someone in front of you you know you're less inclined to be rude to them you can't hang up the phone on them i mean sure you can slam the door in their face and canvases canvassers will tell you that you know they've had those experiences but you know there's there's social pressure there that doesn't exist when you just talk to someone over the phone. And so that actually opens the door to more nuanced and robust conversations. Like you can actually reach people substantively in a meaningful way. And since that's being taken away from Democrats here and Republicans are capitalizing on their loss, this is something to look at. Like if Trump is able to reach a lot of voters in swing states simply by knocking on doors, then that's something that could really spell doom for Joe Biden's campaign. Now, what we're looking at currently when it comes to polling, like now is not the time to freak out. Like I think that Joe Biden has a comfortable enough lead to where you don't have to start panicking. Um, but we haven't seen how Joe Biden is going to perform in the debates. That could change everything. If he face plans, if he says something stupid, I mean, there's going to be a lot of pressure going up in a one-on-one -on -one debate against Donald Trump at least three times, and you could faceplant. That could be bad. That could change the direction or the trajectory of this campaign. So a lot can change, and I am not willing to say, you know, Joe Biden's victory is a foregone conclusion, and this here, to me, is really worrying. Now, I get it. Like, I, I totally think that their decision to just do digital canvassing is wholly justified. I get that. But at the same time, it's worrying because this is something that is really effective at persuading voters. So this is one thing to look at, you know, so um, for every door that Trump's team knocks on, Joe Biden's campaign is going to need to at least make like 10 to 20 more calls to make up for that. So, you know, this election is so different and, you know, there is no rule book. All of the candidates who I talk to say, you know, there, there's no guidelines that you follow to campaign during a pandemic. This is all new, right? We're doing this by trial and error. Like you try something that works. If it doesn't work, you throw it out and you try something new. This is, um, yeah, this is something to consider. And I think that Democrats, even if they don't start doing in-person canvassing, they have to find a way to adequately, you know, um, match what Republicans are doing. And I don't know what the answer to that is. Like, I don't know if there really is any meaningful substitute to in-person canvassing, like knocking on doors and talking to someone 
is such a powerful way to convince people and persuade, you know, reluctant voters, not just to like support your team, but to get out and vote. So the fact that Democrats don't have this as an option, this election, I mean, it, it says something. It's something that we should um, not think of as, you know, the deciding factor, but it's it's certainly something that we should consider. The U.S. government's response to COVID-19 has been absolutely laughable. And I don't mean laughable in a way that, you know, haha, it's funny. I mean laughable in the sense that we have responded to the health and economic crisis in a way that you'd expect a failed state to respond to this crisis. It's been a joke, right? But, you know, according to some lawmakers like Ted Cruz, the thought of actually providing people with economic relief that's what's laughable. It's a joke to him. Um, and he decided to respond condescendingly to another lawmaker who actually wants to provide people with some relief. So Ed Markey tweeted out, give every person in our country $2,000 a month for the duration of the pandemic, $2,000 a month for three months after that, and $2,000 a month retroactive to March. Ted Cruz then responded to that saying, why be so cheap? Give everyone $1 million a day, every day, forever, and three soy lattes a day, and a foot massage. We have a magic money tree we should use it now let's just pause for a moment before we point out his obvious hypocrisy um this is a u.s senator and he's using the dead meme of oh well the left they love soy so um aren't they stupid <laughs> i mean the man is a fucking moron i don't know what else to say ted cruz is a fucking dipshit um and you know he is someone who actually does believe in a magic money tree, because at least that's the way that he governs with regard to special interests, because as Newsmarks pointed out, hey, I found the magic money tree, Federal Reserve to lend an additional one trillion a day to large banks. And this headline from Common Dreams also outlines his hypocrisy. Weeks after voting for $740 billion Pentagon budget, Ted Cruz says Magic Money Tree isn't available to struggling families. Now, after voting for Donald Trump's tax cuts for the wealthy, Ted Cruz encouraged Donald Trump to take executive action to deliver even more tax cuts to the wealthy. So, you know, on the left, we will refer to modern monetary theory as a way to deal with the how do we pay for it question with regard to Medicare for all and whatnot. But you've got to acknowledge now that conservatives, they are, functionally speaking, practicing modern monetary theorists because that's the way that they govern, right? They don't ever worry about paying for things like there was no conversation about how George W. Bush would pay for the Iraq war. We just put it on the credit card. We just we do it right. We just pass the policy. It becomes a law or, you know, the president will take executive action and the money is there. So conservatives actually are modern monetary theorists in spite of the fact that they don't know what that is, probably. So we just have to point that out. But Ted Cruz, like, he can find all the money in the world to pay for wars. If it comes to tax cuts for his wealthy donors, we've got money for that. But helping out struggling Americans during an unprecedented crisis in America? Why not just give him a million dollars? I mean, he just, he dismisses the need there. It honestly should outrage uh, and infuriate every single person, really. Now, Ed Marquis responded saying... It's not a goddamn joke, Ted. Millions of families are facing hunger, the threat of eviction, and the loss of their health care during a pandemic that is worsening every day. Get real. So yeah, that's a good response by Ed Marquis. Um, Ted Cruz, he is trying to be, like, he knows he's unlikable 
and he's trying to be much more personable, right? He tries to be a little bit more witty. He tries to, like, poke fun at the left and meme. But you're a fucking United States senator, you goddamn idiot. Do something. Do something. What, is it 40 million Americans are facing eviction come October? In June, 30% of households missed their housing payment. In July, that number rose to 32%. I mean, you're not going to be laughing when people take to the streets everywhere, right? Because they get evicted and they have nothing left to lose. You're not going to be laughing or memeing when they actually start bringing out the pitchforks for politicians like you who don't give a damn about them. Like people are starving. They're unemployed. And you're laughing about some magical money tree? It's just astonishing that this is the mindset of people. And he says this after he just approves an increase to the military budget. It's just, people should be just completely furious whenever they see people like him. Who don't give a fuck about working people and how they're suffering right now. Losing their healthcare during a fucking pandemic. And all he could think about is, you know, um... Serving his donors, serving the military industrial complex, shamelessly so, and then laughing at anyone who suggests that we should do something to help people. I mean, $2,000 a month during a pandemic, that's not actually unreasonable. Other countries and, you know, the responses that we've seen from them have been much different. Other countries aren't looking at the crisis, the level of crisis or crises that we're seeing. And, you know... Still, you have politicians laughing when people propose actual solutions. It, sh it shouldn't like be surprising to anyone, but it still should absolutely infuriate everyone. Right-wing political commentator Dave Rubin was on someone else's show and they were having a general discussion, I'm assuming, about Ideas. how horrible the left is. And this particular clip is blowing up on left Twitter because Dave Rubin manages to contradict himself not once, but twice in this short 25 second clip. And, you know, putting aside the fact that he contradicted himself and it's stupid, the point overall that he's trying to make is also seemingly idiotic in and of itself. So let's watch and then we'll discuss it uh, afterwards. Name three. Uh, if you say to anybody, you could say to the far furthest lefty socialist Bernie Bananas loon on Twitter. If you say to them, name three politicians you like, they can't do it. They'll say Bernie, AOC, and then, you know, maybe pick another. But the point is, nobody can pick three they like. Even the people who love Trump the most, they don't love him because he's a politician. They love him because he's not a politician. <laughs> Dave Rubin is, um, he's a very unique individual, we'll say that. Um, the look on that guy's face who was listening to him talk and make this completely incoherent point was really, I think, um, it was the cherry on top of this clip. <laughs> you can tell he was just kind of like nodding along, tr along trying to be polite, but, um, Dave Rubin was going nowhere, so I mean... <laughs> In case, you know, you couldn't follow along because it was difficult, right? So, first, he asserts that nobody can name three politicians that they like, and then he proceeds to use the left as an example. Uh, but in his own example, he disproves that original point by basically saying, oh, well, okay, the left can name three politicians. But then, after disproving his own point, he goes back to his original point that nobody can name three politicians that they like. Except, 
you just disproved the original point that you made. So why would you go back to that after disproving the original point? Like, <laughs> let's, let's, let's go through. I, I took the time to transcribe this. Name three. Uh, you could say to anybody, you could say to the far furthest left socialist Bernie Bananas loon on Twitter, if you, if you say name three politicians you like, they can't do it. They'll say Bernie AOC and maybe pick another. So just easily name, easily name three politicians. Um, but the point is nobody can pick. But the point is, nobody can pick three they like, even people who love Trump the most. So then he goes, on, so then he goes on to attacking the right. They, they don't love him because he, he's a politician. They love him because he's not a politician. <laughs> Except, I mean, okay, I get that he's not a career politician, but he's been president now for almost four years. So I think that you know he can no longer say I'm not a politician because you're a politician. You've been president now. Dave Rubin, it's like I almost feel bad making fun of him because this is the low-hanging fruit. Um, <laughs> and, like, even though he has a larger audience than me and a bigger platform, like, it still feels like I'm punching down by making fun of Dave Rubin. Because he, like, you'd think that he'd be more, like, seasoned here. He's been doing political commentary longer than a lot of us. I mean, he's been doing this longer than me, David Dole. Um... And yet he's still like, he makes rookie mistakes where he'll like, he'll just move his mouth and noise will come out and he's just headed in one direction. He doesn't necessarily know what point he's trying to make, but he just keeps talking and keeps talking and keeps talking and he hopes he'll arrive at some type of cohesive conclusion. But, you know, along the way, even if he gets to that point, you know, we go on this huge incoherent journey and it's like, it puts your brain into recovery mode. <laughs> My brain is still in recovery mode from taking in so many high-level important ideas. So, I mean, I don't I don't know what, what's left to say about this clip. Dave Rubin now uh, perhaps broke his own record contradicting himself not once but twice within 25 seconds. Don't even know what the point he was trying to make was. It was stupid, so it wasn't even worth making himself look foolish to make said point. Nonetheless, that's Ray Dubin. You know, um, love him or hate him, you gotta accept him. He uh, He's not a serious person. Apparently, Ben Shapiro has discovered Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's new hit single, WAP, which, as many of you know, stands for Wet Ass Pussy. <laughs> I had to wait, like, until we hit the 32nd mark in this video, otherwise it'll get demonetized if I curse. Um, but the song WAP, Wet Ass Pussy, is, I think it's a banger, quite frankly. Um, I think it's it's phenomenal. As uh, my brother from another mother, Anthony Fantano, says, if you don't like the song, you're just bad at fucking. Uh, Cardi B actually responded to that tweet hilariously enough. But I mean, it's a it's a hit song. It, it's it's just it's something that we need. Like it's a light in a really dark time when we need something to make us all happy. And I think that this song, uh, it, it speaks to my heart. I love it. it it's it's phenomenal. Uh, ben Shapiro, however, you know, being the Puritan that he is, he discovered it and he decided to review the uh, lyrics on his show, The Daily Wire, or The Ben Shapiro Show on The Daily Wire. And he's trying to, like, extract something out of this to make a bigger point about feminism. And he face plans. But this is something that I want to talk about, not necessarily because it yields any substantive value, but because it's super, super cringeworthy. 
Um, let's take a look. Take it away, Ben. Some lyrics. You ready? Whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. Hold up. I said certified freak seven days a week. Wet ass P word. Make that pullout game weak. Yeah, you effing with some wet ass P word. P word is female genitalia. Bring a buck. <laughs> I have to stop. P word is female genitalia. Holy shit. Oh, I really wish that Michael Brooks was around to see this. He would really enjoy this. And a mop for this wet ass P Hang on, I gotta go back. Yeah, you effin' with some wet ass P word. P word is female genitalia. <laughs> P word is uh, female genitalia. <laughs> He's such a weird person. Bring a bucket and a mop for this wet ass P word. Give me everything you got for this wet ass P word. Beat it up, N word. Catch a charge. Extra large and extra hard. Put this P word right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. Hop on top, I want to ride. I do a keg. I'm literally crying. Oh my god. I might not be able to make it. Okay, we have to go back to get the whole lyric about the Kegel. Extra <laughs> large and extra hard. Put this P word right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. Hop on top, I want to ride. I do a Kegel while it's inside. Spit in my mouth. <sighs> this, this is like too much. Like this is, this is breaking me. I can't, <laughs> I can't recover from this. Do a Kegel when I'm inside. Holy fuck. Put this P word right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. <laughs> Hop on top, I want to ride. I do a Kegel while it's inside. Spit in my mouth, look in my eyes. This P word is wet, come take a dive. It continues uh, along these lines. Uh, and it gets significantly- I love how he blurs out what she's wearing because she's wearing something that just like covers her nipples and he's blurring it out. <laughs> uh, and it gets significantly, significantly more vulgar. Like, oh. A lot more vulgar. Oh no. Talk your S word, bite your lip, ask for a call while you ride that D word. <laughs> you really ain't never gonna F him for a thing. He already made his mind up before he came. Now get your boots and your coat for this wet ass P word. <laughs> Pay my tuition just to kiss me on this wet ass P Right, so this is D guys. This, this is okay. Before we, <laughs> before we get to his analysis, we have to stop. So I can catch my breath. Um, I can't move on. I'm hung up on this too much. Two hours later. Large and extra hard. Put this P word right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. Hop on top, I want to ride. I do a kegel while it's inside. <laughs> I do a kegel when it's inside. I don't know. <laughs> I'm too sober to watch this content right now. Okay, let me go back to his analysis. So, hang on, I'm literally crying. Holy shit, I needed this. Um, okay, so he's going to make a broader point about feminism here, um, and how they're like setting the feminist movement back. Um, let's let's hear him out. You really ain't never gonna f him for a thing. He already made his mind up before he came. And now get your boots and your coat for this wet ass p word. Pay my tuition just to kiss me on this wet ass p. Right, so. 
this is do you, guys this, this is what you're totally botching the delivery by the way <laughs> you can try a little bit harder i think this fought for this is what the feminist movement was all about it's not uh it, it's not really about you know women being treated as independent full rounded human beings it's about wet ass p word and if you say anything differently it's because you're a misogynist you see uh it gets really uh really 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 vulgar why don't we go through it all um i wish i could get the full clip somewhere listen he is trying so hard he's reaching just to find some way to tie this to feminism to shit on feminism let's just admit what we're dealing with here ben you just were offended by this you were triggered for lack of a better word and you wanted to talk about this because all of the vulgarity here this isn't about feminism i mean like the song itself how could you say that it's against feminism when it's empowering women? First of all, like as human beings that are supposed to be in this egalitarian society in 2020, we should all be sex positive. That's not bad. Like the fact that they're singing about sex and celebrating the fact that they like to have sex, that's not a bad thing. Like that doesn't make it inherently bad because you don't like it, right? Because you're a Puritan. All the songs that I listened to when I was growing up, it was like this like it was in the same vein, which is why I think I like the song so much because I grew up with like, you know, Trick Daddy. Uh the Ying Yang Twins, like their entire album, The United States of Atlanta, was basically like songs like this. Like, I would love to hear him read off the Whisper song by the Ying Yang Twins. I think that would be phenomenal. But I mean, like the fact that he's trying to tie this to feminism and suggest that this is bad for feminism. No, feminism is about uh, not just the empowerment of women, but allowing women to uh, have equal rights, equal civil rights, civil liberties, you know, the same that men have, having, uh, you know, an equal footing in society. So I don't understand how he's trying to, like, draw this to feminism and say that this is somehow like, oh, this was the goal of feminism so that, you know, uh, rappers like Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion can make songs about wet-ass P-word. I mean, it's just nonsensical. I, like, there's no political substance here, but he's trying really hard to extract something from this because he desperately wants to talk about how offended he is by this. Ben, you are a weak-ass C-word. And by C-word, I mean you are a cunt. <laughs> you are so stupid. Now, uh, for whatever reason, this clip was brought to my attention of uh, what Ben Shapiro considers... Uh, real mu music according to him. Um, let's listen to this. If we weren't already cringing enough. There Out in the darkness A fugitive running Fallen from God Fallen from grace God be my witness, I never shall yield. I can't. Okay, that's as much as I can take. I'm really going to regret watching that. Uh, let's look at some of the comments here from uh, Ben Shapiro fans. Ben, please release a mixtape. This is so disturbing. It should come with a trigger warning. This is a lib right here, or a lefty. Um, I just imagine him singing to college leftists, Facts don't care about your feelings. Oh my god, these people are so horrible. Um, quite unexpected, I must say. Been thinking about AOC's feet. Okay, all the recent comments are from leftists who are just now finding this clip because I too just found this clip, unfortunately. This is why straight people are banned from participating in the <laughs> Okay, now this video is getting brigaded by leftists, so I can't necessarily say that all of the uh, Daily Wire viewers are... Um, 
yep, this just blew up on left Twitter, that all the Daily Wire viewers are like, uh, you know, loving it. But I mean, this is gold right here. I don't know what more to say about this. He just read off the words to wet ass pussy. And I, um, I don't know what else to say. Um, yeah. <laughs> Enjoy, I guess. Mine is the way of the Lord. Those who follow the path of the righteous shall have their reward. And if they fall as Lucifer fell. Well, it's official. Joe Biden has announced his running mate. And that individual, unsurprisingly, I think, is Kamala Harris. Um, I think from the get-go, I assumed that it would be Kamala Harris. And we kind of went back and forth between whether or not, you know, he might choose someone else like Gretchen Whitmer, maybe even Karen Bass. But it's Kamala Harris. And this is basically who I expected him to choose. Now, he announced this via Twitter saying, I have the great honor to announce that I've picked Kamala Harris, a fearless fighter for the little guy and one of the country's finest public servants as my running mate. Back when Kamala was attorney general, she worked closely with Bo. I watched as they took on the big banks, lifted up working people and protected women and kids from abuse. I was proud then and I'm proud now to have her as my partner in this campaign. Now, I have two different takes on this. My first is that I think that politically, whether or not this is smart, I think it doesn't necessarily matter who he chooses as his VP wasn't necessarily, in my opinion, going to be enough to really change the trajectory of this election. But my personal choice is, you know, the only people who I really would have preferred, Nina Turner, um, Bernie Sanders, that's what would have appeased me. Uh, or who would have appeased me specifically. And um, I did not expect to be pleased either way. I mean, I knew he was going to pick someone who's a neoliberal corporate Democrat with a terrible track record. But at least, you know, moving on to whether or not I feel like this is a strategically savvy move, I will say, sure, at least Kamala Harris, like in comparison with other individuals who he was previously considering, like Amy Klobuchar, at least Kamala is uh, someone who is more charismatic, right? I think that she when she tries to be, is actually a talented, you know, political speaker. At the beginning of the 2020 Democratic Party primary, I think that she really was ahead of the pack because she was so talented at, you know, um, talking about policy. She was unapologetically progressive until she took a little bit of heat from health insurance companies, then she backed away from Medicare for All. But I mean, I think that, you know, in comparison with other options, you know, she is someone who I, I think is more charismatic. So, you know, if I'm Joe Biden... I think it's a fine choice. Do I feel any excitement about Kamala Harris? No. Uh, is this a more strategically savvy pick than Hillary Clinton choosing Tim Kaine? Yes, because you could literally choose anyone, substitute Tim Kaine with anyone, and it probably would have been better. Like, I think a lot of people forget that Tim Kaine even exists. So look, I'm just... I'm not shocked by this at all when we got the news that he'd likely be making an announcement today. I, uh, <laughs> I told myself, oh, okay, so he's going to announce Kamala today. Finally, no more, you know, will he or won't he announce today? No more. Oh, well, who's it going to be? I know that there were a lot of lefties who were even a little bit excited about the possibility of him choosing Karen Bass. Um, I never thought that that would 
actually happened. I don't know how seriously he was vetting her. I'm assuming it was relatively seriously based on how much coverage she got. But even if he chose her, that's someone that wouldn't satisfy me. I mean, she was on, uh, I think it was MSNBC or CNN, one or the other, talking about how, you know, she supports Medicare for All, which is great, but Biden isn't wrong for not supporting Medicare for All. So whoever he would have chosen, it would have been someone who aligned with his neoliberal pro-corporate agenda. So it's not like this is going to change very much from the standpoint of me as a leftist right i don't think that this is going to change the trajectory of this election in terms of if it helps him or hurts him going up against donald trump i don't necessarily know uh, you know kamala harris she does kind of have this cult following so perhaps that's going to be beneficial to joe biden who has almost no enthusiasm around him so i don't necessarily think this is going to hurt him if anything i think that there's a possibility that this helps him but I just want to say, we've got to give a shout out to Elizabeth Warren, who threw away everything, uh, all so she could possibly be Joe Biden's VP, when being Bernie Sanders' VP would have almost certainly been a sure bet. Um, but now she is uh, powerless, and she watered down Medicare for All, uh, her own proposal to appeal to Joe Biden, and it was all for absolutely nothing, because we got the result that I think pretty much everyone expected. It's Kamala Harris. Now, um, from a policy standpoint, I have done many comprehensive breakdowns on this channel about my issues with Kamala Harris, about her time as a prosecutor. And there is a lot of concerns. So there is the possibility that she's vulnerable in the sense that if Trump wants to promote, you know, his first step act and promote his own criminal justice record, if he pivots away from this tough on crime, you know, thing that he's currently on, that could be an issue, right? Her, you know, laughing off the prospect of legalizing weed. Um, there's a lot that could leave her vulnerable to attacks from Republicans, but I don't necessarily know that they're going to be able to sufficiently pull off a persuasive attack against Kamala Harris's tough on crime record, given Trump's current, you know, law and order stance that he's taking unequivocally. So, you know, in the end, this is exactly what I expected. It's not necessarily surprising to me. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't really care. <laughs> like, <laughs> let me just be clear. Like, I genuinely don't care. To me, like, this wasn't going to, like, let's, let's even assume for a moment that uh, Joe Biden chose um, Elizabeth Warren, which is what a lot of lefties were clamoring for. I shouldn't say a lot, but some lefties were clamoring for, like Mehdi Hassan and whatnot. Even if he chose Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren isn't going to somehow convince him to be more leftist. You know, she's going to, you know, jeopardize her own principles to accommodate Joe Biden's policy positions. So any VP would have done the same thing. So I'm not I'm not surprised by this. Um, it kind of goes to show you that Kamala Harris is a fake opportunistic politician because she really, I mean, out of the gate, hit Joe Biden the hardest out of all of the other Democratic Party primary contenders. And here she is, his VP. But I mean, it is what it is. It doesn't necessarily matter to me. It doesn't change my opinion about uh, Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. It just is a thing that I expected and the result that we all uh, that we all got, love it or hate it. So yeah, Kamala Harris is Joe Biden's running mate. Let me know if you're surprised because I am, uh, I'm not shocked at all, to be honest. And that little girl was me. So as a member of the quote unquote radical left, I think that most of my viewers know how I feel about Joe Biden and his running mate, Kamala Harris. I don't like them because I think that they're too conservative. Now, I think that if you're not a regular viewer, you're going to push back against my use of the term conservative to Kamala Harris because that seems a little bit extreme, right? I mean, you can say Joe Biden is a moderate, a conservative, but Kamala Harris? Well, yeah, because think about it. 
she does not support Medicare for All. She was wishy-washy on Medicare for All when she claimed to support it, and then she moved away from it entirely once she got pressure from the private health insurance industry. If you don't support Medicare for All, that's a conservative position, and you're to the right of the right-wing party in the UK, the Tories, because even Boris Johnson, as extreme as he is, at least believes healthcare should be free at the point of service. Now, he may be trying to chip away at the national health system in the UK, but regardless, he's still better on this issue than Kamala Harris. And if you are okay with thousands of Americans dying every single year because they don't have healthcare, that's a pretty conservative position, at least on healthcare. But it gets worse because when it comes to foreign policy, Kamala Harris is also really bad. She is pro-U.S. imperialism. She is pro-Israeli apartheid. And if you question my claims here, all you've got to do is watch her 2017 speech at APAC, and you're going to understand why leftists like me don't like her. Now, when it comes to criminal justice reform, Laura Baselon of the New York Times penned a 2019 opinion piece that basically perfectly explained why her tough on crime stance as a prosecutor is antithetical to everything the left stands for. It goes against our approach towards restorative justice, and it's why the left isn't excited about Kamala Harris. Now, by no means is she worse than most Democrats. She's better than Joe Biden. She's not as conservative as him. Her record isn't as bad as him. But by any reasonable leftist standards, she is not a good candidate. Having said that, the individuals who should theoretically be excited about Kamala Harris, a former top cop who was tough on crime, is Republicans. Now, the reason why Republicans, in theory, should like Kamala Harris is because Republicans like Wall Street, and Wall Street likes Kamala Harris, because as soon as Joe Biden announced that she'd be his running mate, Wall Street executives wasted no time telling the press how relieved and excited they were that he chose her. And Donald Trump himself also loves Kamala Harris because he donated $6,000 in total to her back in 2011 and 2013 when she ran for attorney general in California. Ivanka Trump also donated $2,000 to her in 2014. Now, I honestly don't know who should be more embarrassed by that fact. I mean, Kamala Harris accepted thousands of dollars from an anti-gay Republican who was leading the birther movement against Barack Obama. That's embarrassing, but Donald Trump, who's now attacking Kamala Harris as a radical leftist, donated money to her campaigns. So it's, it's ridiculous. None of these people are serious. None of them are consistent. They're all hypocrites. But we know that deep down, regardless of what Trump says, he likes Kamala Harris because she didn't prosecute Steve Mnuchin, who went on to become Donald Trump's Treasury Secretary. So Trump has a little bit of a problem on his hands. He's backed into a corner. He doesn't know what to do because Joe Biden is apparently, according to him, not necessarily radical left, but he's being controlled by the radical left. We're the ones who are really pulling the strings. And the fact that he chose Kamala Harris as his running mate, that's basically proof that he is embracing the radical left. He's no longer just, you know, um, begrudgingly being dragged along by them. Now he's saying, all right, I welcome you with open arms, except that's really stupid. And the way that they're running this campaign, Republicans, is they basically... They thought that Bernie Sanders was going to be the nominee, so they created all these attack ads, socialist, radical left, and they just thought, all right, all of a sudden there's a change. We already created all these talking points, and it's too late to change, so we'll just use the same playbook. So Joe Biden is a radical leftist, Kamala too. It just, it, 
it's such a weird political strategy that they're using, but I shouldn't even say that because this is the same strategy that they use every single time. So as soon as Joe Biden announced that Kamala would be his running mate, Donald Trump released this moronic ad. Kamala Harris ran for president by rushing to the radical left, embracing Bernie's plan for socialized medicine, calling for trillions in new taxes, attacking Joe Biden for racist policies. Voters rejected Harris. They smartly spotted a phony. But not Joe Biden. He's not that smart. Biden calls himself a transition candidate. He is handing over the reins to Kamala while they jointly embrace the radical left. Slow Joe and phony Kamala, perfect together, wrong for America. That ad was nonsensical. To say that she embraced socialized medicine is wrong on so many levels because she did not embrace Medicare for All. She moved away from Medicare for All. We have videos detailing how she specifically moved away. But to say that she embraced socialized medicine, even when she supported Medicare for All, that isn't true because she's not embracing socialized medicine. If you support Medicare for All, you're effectively supporting socialized insurance. You know, socialized healthcare is something that you could say the national health system in the UK is, not Medicare for All. So it's wrong on a number of levels. He also says, in essence, that by choosing uh, choosing Kamala Harris, Joe Biden has embraced the radical left. If you think that Kamala Harris is radical left, then that is as ridiculous as thinking that McDonald's is healthy for you. Because it's not true. It's preposterous. It's demonstrably false. But Trump isn't alone because there are other individuals, political commentators in particular, that think she really is super duper radical. Ben Shapiro, who is definitely not a fan of wet-ass P-words, tweeted out, Kamala Harris is a far-left radical with a shocking inability to connect on a personal level. She's rehearsed and mechanical. Her record is wide open to serious attacks. She adds nothing to the Biden ticket other than checking some boxes for the Twitter blue checks. She's mechanical? I mean, I would agree to an extent, but Ben Shapiro, of all people, should never say that someone else is mechanical. And the reason why her record is open to criticism is because left-wingers don't like her record because she's too conservative. Right-wingers, conversely, should love her record. You're tough on crime, she's tough on crime. She doesn't support Medicare for All, you don't support Medicare for All. So what's not to love if you're a right-winger, right? That she's, uh, left wing on social issues i mean is that all you care about like it, it's just these people don't know what they want right they don't know what they want and they see the d in front of kamala's name and they instinctively just think oh well i'm a republican she's not on my team so i have to uh, not like her but their attacks believe it or not are dumber than what we just saw from ben shapiro and donald trump because the federalist society is attacking her in a really unique way if you are a conservative so as jared holt tweeted out the federalist a right-wing op-ed shop with an unmistakable pro-police editorial position is currently trying to sell its supporters kamala is a cop t-shirts now <laughs> the question that i have to ask is are you promoting kamala harris because if you're a conservative that should theoretically be a good thing. If Kamala is a cop, then shouldn't you be trying to lick her boots right now? Because that is what we've seen over the past couple of months. Conservatives licking the boots of police officers as they do violence against protesters. I mean, for a conservative to make this argument, it's nonsensical. Leftists can make this argument. When we say Kamala is a cop, we're saying it because we want to defund the police. We don't like her tough on stance crime. But for you to say this, I mean, I don't know what you're trying to get at. It's like if I made a shirt that I sold that said Trump supports 
Medicare for all. Like, wait, isn't that a good thing? Don't I as a leftist want Medicare for all? So don't you as a right winger who is a bootlicker of police officers like that? I mean, these people don't know what they are talking about. Like they're trying to find a way to attack her, but everything that they have been throwing at her is just, it's incoherent. It's inconsistent. It's demonstrably false. And as a left winger, I think there is plenty of reasons to criticize Kamala Harris. But if you're a right winger, she isn't a radical leftist, which is why their attacks look so bizarre. Now, Tucker Carlson, believe it or not, probably had the most bizarre attack of them all. And it just straight up was incoherent. Actually, it might be, might be nice to have someone like that. But that is not Kamala Harris, not even close. Harris has endorsed forcing schools to let biological males play on girls' athletic teams. That's not a majority position. It is nuts. But it's not as crazy as federally subsidized abortions for biological men. Harris is for that, too. She has announced it. Think that through for a minute. Men can't get pregnant. So how do we pay for their abortions? Harris has never explained that, of course. At this point, it would be systemically racist to ask her, so no one ever will ask her. Shut up. No questions allowed. He just said it'd be systematically racist to ask her for clarification about these policy positions. Are you a system? Are you an institution, Tucker? Do you understand the words that you're using? Like, you are on national television. And his criticism of Kamala Harris is she has endorsed letting biological males play on girls' athletic teams. So the implication here, I mean, this is transgender fear-mongering, but what he's implying is that what Kamala supports is, you know, these high school teenage boys who, if they want to dominate at sports, all they have to do is put on a wig, call themselves Susie or something, and um, then they can just go play women's sports. No, she is in favor of allowing trans females to play female sports. That's what she's in favor of. And she's correct there. But then he trots out this weird claim. She is for federally subsidized abortions for biological men. Now, he correctly pointed out that biological men cannot get pregnant, which is correct. So, you know, obviously he is misrepresenting a position because she never said this. And I looked up this statement I don't know where it's coming from. Like, I tried to fill in the blanks. Like, maybe she said something about trans men who still kept their female reproductive organs. I mean, there's no origin for this. He just straight up made this up. Federally subsidized abortions for biological men. Unless you're referring to condoms. I don't know if he would qualify that as an abortion. But do you understand? Like, the point is that this is incoherent. It makes no sense. What are you getting at here? that Kamala Harris wants to give biological men abortions. Okay, well, if biological men can't get pregnant, which you correctly stated, then why should we worry about them having abortions, let alone whether or not the government is going to be paying for it? Like, you sound like a fucking dipshit. It doesn't make any sense. So this is the, the problem here. They don't know how to attack Kamala Harris. They don't know how to, how to attack Joe Biden because these are candidates who aren't that bad in their opinion. Left-wingers can criticize Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, such as myself, because we are coming at our critique from an entirely different position. But right-wingers, the only criticisms that exist currently are from the perspective of a lefty. So if you criticize the things that left-wingers criticize Kamala Harris for, 
then you look like an idiot because, well, we don't like that she's tough on crime, but you do like tough on crime stances for prosecutors, so shouldn't you support that? I mean, why would Donald Trump donate to her if he didn't like her tough on crime stance, you know, while she was the attorney general of California? It makes no sense, right? So, um, I think it's really funny watching them fumble because throughout the course of this election cycle, Trump has really struggled to formulate a, a coherent attack on Joe Biden. And all that he has is that Joe Biden is controlled by the radical left. I mean, if that were true, wouldn't he su be supporting Medicare for all? Wouldn't he be supporting uh, UBI at least during the pandemic? I mean, to say that he is being controlled by the radical left, you've got to provide us with some evidence. He is not. He's not. Even his wife has gone out of her way to say mm, he's kind of a moderate because he is. In fact, I think that being a moderate is a little bit of a misrepresentation. He's pretty right wing in almost all of his stances. Maybe not social issues, but on economic issues, on foreign policy. He's a right winger for all intents and purposes. And a lot of Republicans like Lindsey Graham love him. So the fact that they're struggling here to criticize joe biden and now kamala harris it's just sad it's sad like you can tell they had a playbook that they wanted to use socialism and bernie didn't win so you know um that attack kind of became stale but it's kind of like if you buy a t-shirt that is too big for you and you know you try to return it but you lost the receipt so you figure, fuck it, I bought it, so I might as well wear it. That's what they're doing with their 2020 strategy. Now, what this tells you is that, you know, for anyone who was fear-mongering about Bernie Sanders and saying that we can't support him because he's too far left, we all could have predicted that regardless of who the nominee was, Republicans were going to call that person a socialist. They literally called Barack Obama a Marxist, a pro-capitalist, neoliberal Democrat, according to them, is a Marxist. So they throw around terms like Marxist and socialist and radical when the only reason why they perceive people like Kamala Harris and Joe Biden even to be radical is because from their perspective, being so far on the right, maybe they do seem radical to them. But in actuality, in the real world, where Americans support Medicare for all, support a Green New Deal, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris aren't too radical. They're too conservative for most Americans. And that's a fact, regardless if Republicans want to acknowledge it or not. So I think that we all know every single candidate who runs for office is going to have supporters that are enthusiastic sometimes, they get a little bit annoying or oftentimes even may uh, be a little bit toxic. Sure, you can find those types of elements in any single political campaign, like politics, it's important. There's a lot at stake. So people oftentimes invest their emotions into these races, right? So um, there's the Bernie bros, there's the K-Hive. And uh, I think that we all know how Bernie Sanders supporters were perceived by the mainstream media. Let's take a look at this article from Scott Bixby of The Daily Beast, who writes about Bernie Bros, and this was published in January. The title of his article says, Bernie Bros are loud, proud, and toxic to Sanders' campaign. The Vermont Independent is grappling with a toxic wedge of fandom that threatens to distract from his campaign and turn off potential supporters. And there's a subtitle that says, Bro, no. So this writer has staked out a really firm position against this type of toxic behavior, 
the Bernie bros, right? The way that they uh, swarm people online who criticize Bernie Sanders, the way that they push back against what they perceive to be biased attacks. Uh, and he writes this, Senator Bernie Sanders has called their behavior disgusting. Would-be supporters of the Vermont Independent have cited them as the reason they can't endorse him. His campaign has even privately apologized to rivals for online pylons that crossed the line into open harassment. And still, the Bernie bro army marches on. So this digital army, if you will, the Bernie bros, according to him, you know, they're toxic, they're bad for politics, they're bad for Bernie Sanders, and he doesn't like them. But I am sure you are going to be just so shocked to learn that he feels a little bit differently about Kamala Harris's supporters, widely known as the K-Hive. Because in an article he just wrote with an animated image of Kamala where she looks like a literal deity... He writes, Kamala Harris built a digital army, now she gets to use it. While she's on the national stage and while people continue to attack her, we're going to respond, said Eric Bazile Amil, a student at Georgetown and member of the K-Hive. And the subtitle this time says, no choice but to stand. So do you understand here? Bernie bros bad, K-Hive good. He has no choice but to stand the K-Hive. <laughs> This is published, these two articles published less than a year apart. No shame. No recollection of his argument against a different army. Isn't that interesting to you? Um, now, the K-Hive, they have done horrible things. Uh, they have even gone so far as to dox people, literally. Because as this person points out, K-Hive literally doxed me, called child protective services on me literally just to try to get my son taken away because i called her a cop well still we have no choice but to stand k-high for life now look uh putting aside like that type of behavior because i never condone doxing i unequivocally condemn that i don't care who does it k-hive bernie bros that's bad right but this is rare i'll admit low-key i kind of support the k-hive because of how ruthless they are i mean Let's face it, they know fuck all about policy. Like <laughs> this is a cult of personality mostly. They don't they don't know what policies they want. But regardless, like I think that you know, the fact that they're so ruthless in calling out what they perceive to be biased attacks against Kamala Harris, I don't blame them for it because as a Bernie bro, I respect the hustle. You know, I, I acknowledge that this is going to be a thing that we see going forward in politics because the internet exists. When a journalist publishes what is obviously a hit piece, they're going to get that instant pushback, right? Same thing would happen to me if I publish a video that, you know, people didn't like. I'd see the comments where they tell me to go fuck myself. But, you know, it must be the tactics that caused Scott Bixby to differentiate between the Bernie Bros and the K-Hive. So here's how he describes the behavior of the K-Hive. Despite Harris dropping out of the race in December 2019, before a single vote was cast in a presidential nominating contest, her K-Hive has continued apace, boosting her as a potential running mate, warring with supporters of other candidates who eventually outlasted her and most recently launching a full-throated defense of the California senator in the face of perceived hostility from Biden's own circle. So I wonder how he'd feel if Bernie Sanders supporters do the same thing and they confront someone 
who they believe to be lobbing, you know, a bad faith attack against Bernie Sanders. Here's what he writes about the Bernie bros. When Senator Elizabeth Warren accused Sanders of telling her in a private meeting that he didn't believe that a woman could defeat President Donald Trump in 2020, the Massachusetts senator's Twitter feed was deluged with a plague of snake emojis, even as Sanders called for a de-escalation in hostilities. So the snake emojis, according to uh, Scott Bixby, that goes in the article where he describes Bernie Sanders supporters as being toxic. But this, this activity from the K-Hive is not toxic, according to Scott Bixby. When a top bundler for Biden told the Daily Beast that Harris's hitting Biden on school busing in an early debate was treacherous, members of the K-Hive blasted the remarks as sour grapes. When Chris Dodd, the former U.S. Senator and co-chair of Biden's vice presidential vetting committee, was reported in Politico to have criticized Harris's lack of remorse for the attack, the K-Hive sprang into action, decrying Dodd's remarks as both sexist and racist. So the K-Hive going after public figures, that's okay. Scott Bixby approves of that. But Bernie bros going after public figures, that's bad. So let's look at how he characterizes another attack by the Bernie bros on a different victim, John Legend. Last week, performer John Legend cited Bernie bros who, though branded with the pejorative Bernie bros, are in no way limited to just his male fans as doing quite a disservice to Sanders as a reason that he was backing Warren's candidacy. Try not to drive people away with your nastiness, Legend tweeted. I will happily vote for him if he wins the primary. Chill. In response, some users replied with the poop face emoji. Oh no! So snake emojis and poop face emojis, that's evidence that Bernie bros are being toxic according to Scott Bixby. But when K-Hive defends the candidate that they support after they see what they perceive to be an attack, well, that's just them being excited about her candidacy. Quote, that excitement and the perceived threat to the broader gains made by her historic run is part of the reason that the K-Hive has remained a digital force in Harris's favor long after she left the field. So if you're not seeing the double standard here, then um, there's something wrong with you. Very clearly, anything that the K-Hive does is because, you know, they're excited about her. But anything that the Bernie bros did, that's bad. In fact, CNN ran a segment where they detailed all of the uh, victims of Bernie bros, or at least kind of gave a general overview of some of the harassment that they've been seeing. And uh, what was their evidence? Snake emojis. Rat emojis to Pete Buttigieg. So the emojis, that's toxic. That's harassment. But K-Hive... They can do no wrong, because we have no choice but to stand Queen Kamala. Scott Bixby is an absolute hack who should be embarrassed of himself to not see his hypocrisy here. Wow. Now, before you tell me to stop crying over spilled milk and to get over the fact that Bernie lost... Um, understand that the reason why this is important is because let this be a lesson to future left-leaning politicians... You are never going to win over the establishment. Bernie should not have said, well, you know what? I condemn my supporters. He should have tried to push back against those claims because there were other candidates in this race that were doing the same thing.
And I have showed repeatedly on this program a study from 2016 that showed that among all of the top chair candidate supporters, Bernie's were one of the least hostile, whereas Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton's supporters were more aggressive online. So this entire Bernie bro narrative was manufactured. It was a media narrative that was created to smear Bernie Sanders and make it seem as if he was, you, you know, this unique candidate that attracted all of these sexist, possibly racist bros who were going to attack anyone, especially women, of course, who uh, criticize Bernie Sanders. It's disgusting, and it shows you that the media is never going to be on your side because if you are a true leftist, then you threaten power structures, and that includes the media as well, the entire corporate establishment, and the media is grouped in with that because who do you think pays for advertisements on corporate media? Large, multi-billion dollar companies, the same ones that donate to politicians. So of course they're gonna be against you, so what we have to do is find a candidate next time that doesn't just believe these smears isn't you know trying to appease the media and say okay i concede my bernie bros are horrible you can't do that you have to acknowledge you will never win them over and as a movement we have to acknowledge respectability politics is not going to serve us at all because no matter what we do no matter how polite we are they're always going to cherry pick examples of fringe individuals that make all of us look bad and that's how they're going to represent us so all we can do is keep up what we're doing relentlessly advocate for policies and defend politicians that are on our side politically like there's nothing else you can do because this is I think a perfect example that demonstrates the media's bias against Bernie bros not because they're sexist and you know uniquely hostile but because they support policies that threaten the entire political establishment that's what this is about and scott bixby um regardless if he acknowledges that or not should be really really embarrassed right about now maybe it's just me but i haven't been seeing donald trump tweet about or fearmonger about mail-in voting as frequently lately and i think that Part of the reason why that's happening is because he's realizing that people just don't believe his lies because they're provably false. But another reason why I think we're hearing less from him about this is because he realizes he's the president and fearmongering about mail-in voting isn't the only way that he can undermine mail-in voting. He realizes that he can use his power as president of the United States to cripple the one agency in U.S. government that is going to actually make mail-in voting a possibility, the U.S. Postal Service. And what we're seeing, based on what the U.S. Postal Service workers are saying, should absolutely scare every single person who cares about democracy. So as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams reports, the head of the Iowa Postal Workers Union alleged Tuesday that mail sorting machines are being removed from post offices in her state due to new policies imposed by Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, a major GOP donor to President Donald Trump whose operational changes have resulted in dramatic mail slowdowns across the nation. Asked by NPR's Noel King whether she has felt the impact of the Joy's changes, Iowa Postal Workers Union President Kimberly Carroll, a 30-year Postal Service veteran, answered in the affirmative, saying, Mail is beginning to pile up in our offices and we're seeing equipment being removed. Carroll went on to specify that equipment that we use to process mail for delivery, including sorting machines, is being removed from Postal Service facilities in Iowa as DeJoy rushes ahead with policies that, according to critics, 
are sabotaging the Postal Service's day-to-day -day operations less than 90 days before an election that could hinge on mail-in ballots. In Iowa, we are losing machines, and they already, in Waterloo, were losing one of those machines. So that also hinders our ability to process mail in the way that we had in the past, added Carol, who said she is not a fan of the Postmaster General. Washington state election officials have also raised concerns about the removal of mail sorting machines. I grew up in a culture of service where every piece was to be delivered every day, and his policies, although they've only been in place for a few weeks, are now affecting the way that we do business and not allowing us to deliver every piece every day as we've done in the past, said Carol. I don't see this as cost-saving measures. I see this as a way to undermine the public confidence in the mail service. It's not saving costs. We're spending more time trying to implement these policy changes, and it's, in our offices, costing more over time. Observers reacted with alarm to Carol's comments, viewing them as further confirmation that DeJoy is deliberately attempting to damage the Postal Service with the goal of helping Trump win re-election in November. Now, when you consider the fact that a lot of people, most voters, are going to want to logically choose to vote by mail during a pandemic, and also consider the fact that most people who are Joe Biden supporters are going to be the ones to vote by mail, you have to see what's obvious here. Of course, Donald Trump's postmaster general is trying to sabotage the, you know, capacity of the U.S. Postal Service at the behest of Donald Trump, who he donated to, who he supports. This is so horrible that if the United States saw this taking place in a Latin American country or a Middle East country with a lot of oil, we would be planning to invade them and bring them democracy. That's how bad the situation is. But here at home, we have to worry that our votes might not be counted because we're going to vote by mail during a pandemic because we don't want to risk our own health. I mean, everyone should be outraged by this. Everyone should be fearful that their vote isn't going to be counted and take extra pre precautions to make sure they mail out their ballots extra early. But I mean, there's only so much that you can do on the individual level. If these institutions fail us, if the U.S. Postal Service is unable to get all of the mail-in ballots to us at a time when we have an election, that's going to be a catastrophe. And think about how badly, you know, they've been behind just in terms of their general operations. Donald Trump's postmaster general, DeJoy, has cut overtime. That's no longer a possibility for them. So all of the mail that they had before, that they were able to deliver in overtime to keep them caught up, that's no longer an option for them. So the mail is piling up. And regardless if they try to prioritize ballots, like if their overall function and operations is slowed down due to a lack of resources and personnel, what do you think is going to happen come November 3rd? We're looking at a disaster, potentially. Donald Trump, based on this, I mean, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say he's trying to outright steal this election. He is trying to steal this election. Because if you are genuinely concerned about fraud, that it is, uh, you know, a possibility with mail-in ballots, you know, as the president of the United States, wouldn't you tell your postmaster general to, you know, further enhance the capacity of the U.S. Postal Service so they will be able to deliver all mail-in ballots in time? Isn't that something that seems like the logical thing that you do, the, the practical step to take to make sure that mail-in ballots doesn't lead to any issues? Well, no, because this was never about 
him worrying about mail-in ballots. This was about him realizing that if mail-in voting is actually a thing that most people pursue, he could lose because that could increase turnout. And when turnout goes up, uh, Republicans lose. This is really troubling. Um, and reading this, like, it's chilling. Um, this is something that you often see in autocratic regimes, but where the oldest quote-unquote democracy, and we have to worry that, you know, the most basic minimum expectation of democracy, like having our votes being counted, isn't going to actually be a thing that takes place in this election. Um, it's it's startling. Uh, it's worrying. It should be alarming to every single person. And even if a lot of people are making noise about this, still not enough people are speaking out. Even Republicans should be speaking out. Like, this should be an issue where all citizens are against what Trump is doing because they've bought into the belief that democracy is good and we want to be a, demo a democratic nation. But we just don't see enough people sounding the alarm. And, you know, the same thing happens with voter ID laws and voter suppression. And we don't actually look at the results of how that influenced the election until when it's too late, right? So I don't know what to expect from this. I don't know that we're going to see any changes. But based on what we see now... This election is going to be a complete clusterfuck if things don't change fast, if there's no lawsuit to stop Donald Trump or the Postmaster General. Like, I don't know what the proper course of action needs to be, but all we have currently is naming and shaming. And if enough people are aware of what Trump's doing, at least that's a start where we can try to hold him accountable. But for now, I mean, we're we're headed towards destruction. There's an iceberg dead ahead and we are sailing quickly directly right towards it and it's uh horrifying they want three and a half trillion uh, billion dollars for the mail-in votes okay universal mail-in ballots three and a half trillion. they want 25 billion dollars billion for the post office now they need that money in order to have the post office work so it can take all of these millions and millions of ballots now in the meantime they aren't getting there by the way those are just two items but if they don't get those two items, that means you can't have universal mail-in mail voting. voting. So I want to talk about Marjorie Greene, who is a congressional candidate running in Georgia's 14th congressional district, and her primary race just took place. We've talked about her before on the show, but in case you don't remember her, allow me to refresh your memory. President Trump declared Antifa domestic terrorist organization. I have a message for Antifa terrorists. Stay the hell out of Northwest Georgia. You won't burn our churches, loot our businesses, or destroy our homes. I'm Marjorie Green, and I approve this message. America's the greatest country in the world. We need conservatives in Washington that will keep it that way. I'm running to stop gun control. Open borders, the Green New Deal, and socialism. Socialism is never going to recover now. That was devastating. <laughs> These ads are getting so goddamn stupid. And at the rate we're going, like, I wouldn't be surprised if by the next election cycle, somebody writes Medicare for all on a piece of paper and then literally takes a shit on it and then pulls up their pants, stands up and then looks directly into the camera and affirmatively says, that's what I think about socialized medicine. Like, <laughs> that's where we're headed. Like, that's literally where we're headed. And um, if any Republican actually does that as an ad, um, I think that I am due some royalties for that. Now, <laughs> the reason why we're talking about this 
lunatic is because, believe it or not, she just won her primary campaign against another Republican who is also pretty far to the right, but I mean, he's arguably more moderate. He's not as insane as her. He's a neurosurgeon, but voters in, you know, uh, Georgia's 14th congressional district, when given the choice between a QAnon conspiracy theorist like Marjorie Greene and a neurosurgeon, they said, I'm going to go with the QAnon conspiracy theorist. <laughs> People, what are we doing? What are we doing? This is, this is who you elected? A QAnon conspiracy theorist? Guys, I don't know, um, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, but this is not good. Now, the sad thing is that she's probably going to win because this district is very, very right wing. Um, and I mean, she doesn't even have a platform. Like if you go to her website, she has like six Republican Party talking points that are vague, that don't really speak to any specific policies that she wants to implement, uh, with the exception of her wanting permanent austerity. But she doesn't stand for anything. But what she represents is absolute craziness that the Republican Party, let's be honest, has kind of uh, been... Uh, pandering to. So for more on this, we go to the New York Times who writes, in Georgia, Miss Green defeated John Cohen, a neurosurgeon who is no less conservative or pro-Trump, according to the Associated Press, holding a lead of roughly 15 percentage points early Wednesday. The result is likely to unsettle mainstream Republicans who have sought to publicly distance themselves from QAnon supporters running for congressional offices this cycle, even as they quietly support some of them. Now, with Georgia's 14th congressional district, one of the most Republican in the country likely to vote red in November, Miss Green is all but assured of getting the chance to put into action her talk of rooting out imagined deep state cabal of pedophile Satanists who are trying to take down President Trump. QAnon, a conspiracy theory that has attracted a fervent following since it emerged from the troll-infested fringes of the internet nearly three years ago, has already inspired real-world violence, including the killing of a mob boss. Its supporters are slowly becoming a political force that some Republicans feel they cannot afford to alienate, even as the party struggles to distance itself from racist and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. More than a dozen candidates who have expressed some degree of support for QAnon are running for Congress as Republicans, their path cleared by Mr. Trump's own espousal of conspiracy theories. On Wednesday morning, Mr. Trump tweeted, congratulations to future Republican star Marjorie Taylor Greene on a big congressional primary win in Georgia against a very tough and smart opponent. Marjorie is strong on everything and never gives up, a real winner. During his campaign, Mr. Cohen had adopted a slogan that summed up the predicament that Ms. Green posed for Republicans. All of the conservative none of the embarrassment. She is not conservative. She's crazy, Mr. Cowan told Politico before the runoff. She deserves a YouTube channel, not a seat in Congress. She's a circus act. Now, first of all, let me just say fuck you to Mr. Cowan for saying that she deserves a YouTube channel as if that's a bad thing. Uh, she does not deserve a YouTube channel. Um, it is a legitimate career path. So um, I, I take personal offense. Uh <laughs> to that comment. Now, let me just say, the fact that Republicans are shocked by her victory is a little bit bizarre to me because it shouldn't be surprising that the party who denies climate change, who is anti-vaxxer, who is pushing conspiracy theories about COVID-19, would attract someone like Marjorie Greene, who is a QAnon conspiracy theorist. And let's be clear, when we call her a QAnon conspiracy theorist, she's not like tacitly endorsing it or playing footsie with QAnon. Like she openly embraces the title 
of QAnon conspiracy theorist. She literally is a QAnon conspiracy theorist. And guess what? She's going to go to Congress now. And Trump calls her a future star of the Republican Party. Unfortunately, I think he's probably right about that. Because with how far they're shifting to the right, you know, it's easy to see the path and the trajectory that they're on currently. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't include the video that she tweeted out of her victory party. There were dozens of people there and not a single one of them were wearing masks. In fact, she's also an anti-masker herself. Shocker. And she criticized her Democratic opponent for wearing masks. And uh, she says she's against a national mask mandate. So she's in these large gatherings. She is against masks. And she's going to go to Congress. I mean, are we going to be more rigorous in our testing next year? Because someone like this who probably doesn't even believe that COVID-19 is a thing, could expose members of Congress and, you know, hundreds of congressional staffers to COVID-19. I mean, this is, uh, I want to say it's scary, but it's not really scary to me. I mean, I mean, sure, it's alarming, but this is exactly what we expect. And like 10 years down the line, we're going to look back and we're probably going to say, wow, remember the days when the most crazy Republican was Marjorie Greene? Because that's what we were doing back in, what was it, 2008, when we saw the rise of the Tea Party and, you know, how famous Sarah Palin became. And we all thought, oh, wow, God forbid anyone like her become the president or take power. And then we got a president, Donald Trump. And so you see the pattern here, right? Republicans keep shifting further and further and further to the right. And when you go so far right, you hit a brick wall eventually. You can't shift any further to the right to where you're just outright fascist or conspiratorial like you're in complete looneyville and now you're to the point where QAnon candidates are running and they're being relatively successful uh, in their campaigns one is going to go to congress so i mean regardless of how much republicans want to distance themselves from QAnon candidates like marjorie green i'm sorry but this is exactly the type of person who you have been courting. And that's unfortunate for all of us because she's going to go into power and vote for policies that are absolutely, probably horrible. So, um, you know, this uh, this is something. Uh, she is definitely, probably going to be the most psychopathic member of Congress. Like, I think that Louis Gohmert was probably the dumbest member of Congress, but when she gets in, like, they're gonna be neck and neck. They're gonna be competing. Like, I don't wanna say that she's dumber than Louis Gohmert. It's kinda looking that way, though, so I don't I don't know, right? At least, as far as we know, Louis Gohmert, he isn't a QAnon conspiracy theorist, so I don't know. I mean, the fact that it's a reasonable question to ask whether or not someone coming to Congress is dumber than Louis Gohmert in and of itself, speaks to how bad of shape we're in as a country and um yeah she's gonna stick around she's gonna go to congress and um at least it'll be entertaining i guess we're gonna spend a good amount of time talking about the race that's taking place in the first congressional district of Massachusetts between Justice Democrat Alex Morse and incumbent Democrat Richard Neal, who is a very powerful Democrat. He chairs the House Ways and Means Committee. And the thing about this race is a lot of people are starting to pay attention to it because it's starting to get a little bit closer. 
Alex Morris, according to public polls, is inching up. You have a lot of people in that district, a high percentage now saying that they're undecided. You have Alex Morris closing the gap between him and Neil. And after Jamal Bowman and Cori Bush just ousted other incumbent Democrats, everyone's eyes are on this race because it looks to be the next instance where we may see another incumbent Democrat be taken down by an insurgent left-wing candidate. Now, the reason why I'm talking about this is because out of the blue, as this race tightens, as the election comes up, several really serious allegations emerged out of nowhere. Allegations from College Democrats of Massachusetts. Now, originally, when I first heard about this, if you follow me on Twitter, I stated that I wasn't planning on talking about this because I just, I didn't understand the story. Like, something about it seemed off, and there was, like, key details, in my opinion, that were missing. Nonetheless, let's talk through the several allegations of the Me Too nature that have been alleged against Alex Morris. So the first one is that he regularly matched with students on dating apps, including Tinder and Grindr, who were as young as 18 years old. These students included members of the College Democrats of Massachusetts, UMass Amherst Democrats, and other groups in the state. As for the second allegation, they accused him of picking up on college students at events, saying that he'd add students on Instagram and then DM them and that apparently made them feel uncomfortable, even if he wasn't necessarily explicitly stating his interest to pursue them romantically, they didn't like it. Now, finally, he reportedly had sexual contact with college students, including at UMass Amherst, where he teaches, and the Greater Five College Consortium. Now, that last allegation has led to a lot of confusion, because he is a lecturer at this college. So what a lot of people initially assumed was that he as a professor was sleeping with his students, but that's not actually the case. He happened to hook up with students that go to the same college, but weren't directly under him. So there's a lot here that doesn't really make sense to me, which is why I kind of like pivoted away from the story because the first allegation, like kind of looking at this, they're mad that he regularly matched with students on dating apps. But this is an individual who is 31 years old. He's going to match with people who are college students. We don't know if these are undergrads or grad students. Um, and then it says, who were as young as 18 years old. Okay. But 18 years old is of consenting age. And these 18-year-olds are making their own profiles on their own accord on these dating apps and they're getting matched so it seems a little bit bizarre now as for the second allegation they say that he was picking up on college students at these events now they don't supply us with any evidence that he was in fact hitting on college students at these events but the fact that he is dming them afterwards i mean that may be a little bit creepy sure i guess i could see how they they view that in a weird way but they don't actually even accuse him of hitting on them through DMs or creeping on them. They just say they didn't like that he contacted them. Okay, now as for this last um, allegation here, he had sex with students that happened to attend the college. So to be clear, he matched with students and hooked up with them or dated them. I don't know what the circumstances were. And the students didn't even know that he was a guest lecturer at the college. So I'm trying to figure out, like, I'm reading through this, trying to wrap my head around it. Where's the controversy? These are two consenting adults. He 
doesn't appear to be using his position as a guest lecturer, you know, to, you know, use that power dynamic to his advantage. So what am I missing here? And I stated that very clearly, like, am I missing something? What's going on here? Because like me, when I see this, I think, oh, you matched with a student at the school you teach. That's pretty awkward. That's weird. You know, I probably wouldn't be cool with that. Nonetheless, it's not really a scandal. You know, these are two consenting adults of legal age. They could do what they want to. But the plot thickens a little bit because come to find out, I wasn't actually missing anything because there was no scandal. This is all a political hit piece because as Daniel Bogislaw and Ryan Grimm of The Intercept uncovered, the college Democrat at center of attack on Alex Morse hoped to launch career through Richard Neal. And they add, rank and file UMass college Democrats were stunned to see the letter their chapter's leadership wrote on their behalf. Okay, so let's just pause for a moment. You have a college student on behalf of his entire chapter trying to smear Alex Morse, also he can help his own career because he likes Richard Neal. So you have that motivation there, but it goes deeper even than that. There's a really clear conflict of interest. And as you're going to see, there's even evidence. Now, I don't know much about the individual who catalyzed this entire non-story quote-unquote scandal. But what I do know is that he's trying to cultivate a homophobic response from people. Like, he's trying to play on that gay trope of, you know, gay men are sexual predators, they're always preying on others, and you have to be wary of them. Like, you'd think that by now we would have moved on, you know? Um, we see the same thing being used against uh, transgender women with the uh, bathroom panic, but this is exactly what's happening. Like, he's hoping to drum up some type of fear about Alex Morris being predatory, because he's a single gay man who's 31 years old who is sexually active. I mean, the ethical considerations here need to be discussed at length, but we can't possibly get to all of that. But I do want to share the details with you because it's very clear that the intentions of the individual who uh, basically made this scandal a thing or tried to at least, he's doing this because he wants an internship with Richard Neal, and he knows Richard Neal personally, Alex Morse's opponent. So The Intercept breaks it down. With the allegations short of details or any student claiming to be a victim, the focus has shifted to the origin of the letter. The man serving as chief strategist for the UMass Amherst College Democrats, Timothy Ennis, recently completed a class with Neal, who teaches a journalism course. Ennis, according to two members of the College Democrats chapter, was open about his hopes of working for Neal in the future. Meanwhile, an aide with the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences, in which the journalism program sits, alerted the school's administration of evidence that the recently surfaced allegations against Holyoke Mayor Alex Morris are politically motivated according to communications reviewed by The Intercept. Spokespersons for the administration did not respond to requests for comment. Claire Sheedy, a rising sophomore and a Morse supporter, was active in the College Democrats chapter and knew Ennis through their joint work on behalf of the Pete Buttigieg campaign for president, with Ennis handing off the reins of the organization to Sheedy. In November 2019, when Ennis was president of the College Democrats chapter, the pair were in New Hampshire together, campaigning for Buttigieg and 
Ennis, she said, opened up about his respect for Neil in a car ride through New Hampshire. He spoke very highly of Mr. Neil, Sheedy said. What he said to me was he wanted Neil to be his in to politics and work his way up from there. Sheedy said she asked Ennis what he thought of Morse, and Ennis said Morse socialized with students in a way he found creepy. Not the students in question, mind you. And that Morris had recently matched with a student on the Tinder dating app. Sheedy said she didn't think of it again until last week when she and other members of the college Democrats were told by leadership that they had written a letter on the member's behalf to the local college paper which had published an article based on it. Helena Middleton, a rising sophomore and former member of the University of Massachusetts College Democrats, said she joined the group to meet other college students on the university campus where a sprawling undergraduate population of 22,000 can make it difficult to feel like part of a community. A longtime supporter of Morse, she tried to recruit others to join her. I tried to share volunteer opportunities for Morse's campaign, but the chapter leadership would ignore it while at the same time send out opportunities for candidates like Ed Marquis and Joe Kennedy. So it was clear to me that there was something going on there, said Middleton. Eventually, she said she learned that a member of the group's leadership was a student in Neil's journalism course at the time. He made it very clear that he supported the election campaign and that he wanted to work for Neil, Middleton said. Ennis was president of the UMass College Democrats from April 2019 until April 2020, at which point he transitioned to chief strategist. That same month, Morse said College Democrats requested a donation from his campaign. He declined, saying that his war chest wasn't large enough. A number of other Massachusetts politicians, including Neil, did make such donations. The president of the state chapter of the College Democrats later took to Twitter to applaud Neil for donating $1,000 to the Amherst chapter. In May, Neil posted a photo of his class which Ennis, who has since locked his Twitter account, liked. So there's a lot there, but I'm going to move on because the plot thickens even further because Daniel Morans of the Huff Post reached out to the college Dems and after this story broke, they still literally had the audacity to deny the fact that this was politically motivated. And to make matters worse, as Ryan Grimm points out, Alex Morse apparently only attended one event after declaring his candidacy after they basically insinuated that he was there all the time hitting on students. So the students, I don't know how many there are, who are claiming that he made them feel uncomfortable by coming to these events, like, he only went to one event since he's been a candidate, and he's been a candidate for a long time, but all of a sudden, they come out now and say that he makes them feel uncomfortable as the race tightens, as it seems as if Richard Neal might actually be vulnerable, but yet it's not politically motivated. Sure, sure Jan. Jan. But um, regardless if they want to deny that this is politically motivated or not, The Intercept came out with another story that basically confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt with receipts that this was a coordinated effort to smear Alex Morse. Quote, College Democrat chats reveal year-old plan to engineer and leak Alex Morse accusations. Quote, this will sink his campaign, predicted a college Democrat leader hoping to work for Representative Richard Neal. Now, the article goes on to explain, on Wednesday, following a statement by Morse, the statewide College Democrats chapter clarified that he had, in fact, only attended a single event during the course of his campaign. It was after that event in October of 2019 that the leadership of the UMass Amherst chapter began to 
to talk about leaking a story damaging to Morse, according to those online communications. Timothy Ennis, the chief strategist for the UMass Amherst College Democrats, admitted in the chats that he was a Neil Stan and said he felt conflicted about involving the chapter of the College Democrats in a future attack on Morse. Quote, but I need a job, concluded Ennis. Quote, Neil will give me an internship. At the time, Ennis was president of the chapter, a post he held from April 2019 to April 2020 when he was term limited out. Leaders of the College Democrats group went beyond merely plans to leak. They also explicitly discussed how they could find Morse's dating profiles and then lead him into saying something incriminating that would then damage his campaign. That effort appears to have failed to generate the material they hoped for, but the group's leaders did believe they held damning evidence they contemplated leaking. Instagram messages between Morse and Andrew Abramson, who in April became president of the organization. Ultimately, the College Democrats did not release any chats or any other specific claims against Morse, opting instead to level broader charges that he behaved inappropriately. On October 5th, Morse attended a College Democrats event at a local community college. Neil also appeared and was introduced by Ennis, who was at the time enrolled in a journalism class Neil taught at UMass Amherst. Neil later told Ennis he was impressed by the event Ennis claimed in the chats. Morse sat on a panel with Abramson. After the event, Morse reached out to Abramson on Instagram to say it was a pleasure meeting. The two had previously matched on Tinder, Ennis said in the chats, but had never met up. To match on Tinder means both parties must swipe in the same direction in order to begin a conversation. Now, these are the DMs that Alex Morse sent out to Abramson. As you can see, they are completely innocent. They're just making small talk, basically, and bullshitting. Um, but the person who shared this screenshot literally admitted that he's totally leading on Alex Morse, but this is the same person who apparently said that Alex Morse made them uncomfortable. Because I know that when someone makes me feel uncomfortable, I try to lead them on. They're nuts. So after Abramson shared that conversation between him and Morse, Ennis then shared a meme joking about leaking the story to Politico, and Ennis also made an active attempt to find Morse on dating apps himself and match with him, so he too can try to lead him on, I'm assuming, and get him to do something incriminating. So we now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this entire story, this entire scandal, the allegations against Alex Morse are completely bogus. It was created by a self-interested political operative who was trying to help the person who he believed would help him get a job in politics win his election. So it's disgusting, it's unethical, and if I were Alex Morse, I would be speaking to an attorney right now about possibly starting a lawsuit for slander. Like, this is disgusting. Now, we don't necessarily know at the time that I record this whether or not Richard Neal is in cahoots with Ennis or college Democrats, but I think that, you know, a journalist should look into that because this seems pretty fishy because it benefits him. So he certainly should speak out and condemn these allegations against his opponent, which is basically a smear job. Um, and on top of that, what really is sad is another aspect of the story that we have to discuss. The fact that so many people jumped on the bandwagon to uh, smear and dismiss Alex Morse, even when the initial allegations that we saw in the first place didn't even make sense. Like, these are allegations that two grown men are having sex with each other, they're of consenting age, they're adults, and they're having sex and we're supposed to be angry. Like, this is basically puritanical bullshit that we're seeing here. Like, straight people are trying to police the lives of consenting gay adults? Like, 
why would we blame Alex for that and not ask more questions, not ask why a media outlet would publish this without more evidence, without something more substantial. I think Kyle Kalinske put it best. Lefties fell for a smear of a progressive gay candidate taking on one of the most corporate of corporate Dems. He's accused of having consensual adult relationships with students who weren't his. It's pathetically easy to play the left like a fiddle. And he is exactly right. The fact that this is all we got, like those allegations came up, like I can't not help but think this is the result of homophobia. Now, I don't like to use the gay card very often. I only use it and, you know, bring it out when I think it's absolutely necessary, but this is unquestionably the uh, result of implicit bias against the gay man. Because anyone who believed these allegations to be serious or problematic without asking for more evidence at a minimum, I mean, I have to question your judgment. If you could be manipulated that easily by this scandal, then what else would you be willing to fall for? I, like, I want to know. And I think that Alex Morris, in an interview with Crystal Ball on The Hill Rising, made a really phenomenal point about this, how this basically conjures up images of the gay predator and how we should all be weary of gay men because they are preying on everyone. So you've got to watch them and be fearful of them. And what's most problematic is this age-old response to these allegations, the language being used to describe these allegations. And people like me, that have had to endure an over-policing of our sex lives as a member of the queer community. And the number of LGBT folks that have reached out over the last few days who are, too, are so familiar with this language and this, this framing of gay men as, as predators is incredibly problematic and something that we have been going up against for, for generations. And so many people messaging me and say, stay in this fight. Because young people and queer people need freedom too, and we deserve to run for office. And will, ever, will young people ever run? Will gay people ever run for office if this is how powerful people are going to treat us when we actually want to make a difference in this country? And he's exactly right. Straight people have been trying to morally police the sex lives of gay men and women now forever. So the fact that some leftists almost fell for that trap shows that we have a lot of work to do. Like, we have to do better because this is very clearly, I think, an instance of implicit bias. This is homophobia that is bubbling up again, even if people don't want to admit that. And it's homophobia among left-wing people who I think would consider themselves allies. And you can be an ally and support gay people being legally equal, but you have to understand that these biases, these stereotypes about gay men, they're not just going to go away as soon as we have the right to marry. They're going to remain in the backs of our minds for a really long time. And look, even if you are supportive of gay people, a lot of people don't realize that that bias may still exist in their own head. Like you can feel like this visceral response towards you know the thought of gay intimacy even if you're not a homophobe like explicitly even if you're an ally because you have to think about this like the way that american culture perceives gay men is as asexual beings right when we we look at gay people gay characters in television shows we don't really see them in gay relationships we see them as comic relief or we see them as the friend to someone else we don't ever really grapple with the reality that gay intimacy is a thing. We have to think of gay people as asexual beings in order to make ourselves feel comfortable, right? Because a lot of straight people still think that gay sex is gross. I mean, I think that Dave Chappelle made a really 
sound argument about this, as problematic as it may be, back in the early days when the Chappelle show was still on. I think he said that, I think gay sex is gross. You know, I support gay equality, but I'm just going to admit I'm a straight person, and I think that gay sex is gross. And I think a lot of people feel that uh, gay sex is gross, even if they don't think that gay people should be, you know, relegated to second-class citizens, legally speaking. So what you have to do is fight past that instinct to, like, respond you know, to gay people in that negative way. Because you have to understand that gay men have always been treated as predators in our society. I mean, uh, there's a makeup guru, guru, I'm blanking on his name, what is it, George Charles? Like, just last year, I believe, he's 19 years old, he's a virgin, and there were allegations by an older white woman that he was preying on straight men. Now, he brought receipts and disproved all of that, but I mean, this is something that we're constantly having to prove, like when I came out of the closet as a gay man to people, I had to explain to them how me being gay doesn't mean that I'm a pedophile or a sexual predator. So we're fighting to defeat this stereotype and this label and this sexual predator trope. And we don't want to think about people in our culture uh, who are gay as having intimate relationships with other gay people. It reminds me of the days when, you know, I told people that I was gay and the response was, oh, that's that's wonderful. Thank you for telling me. I support you. I just don't want to see anything. Like, this is something that we're constantly dealing with. So, you know, Alex Morse is, you know, perfectly fine as an openly gay man insofar as he doesn't reveal to all of us that he actually is a young man who is sexually active. So that's what the people were trying to play to in this story, Richard Ennis. And that's what makes this so nefarious. Like, he knows this. I'm assuming he's gay if he was going on, you know, these gay dating apps. Um, and the other individual, Abramson, was also on these gay dating apps. So they know about all of this. Like, they know about the gay predator trope if they're gay men, because you have to. And they know that what they were trying to do was get leftists to turn on Alex Morse by triggering that ew, gay, yucky factor in people's brains because once you get them in that state of mind, it's really easy to manipulate them. You can get them to think negative things because when you activate that portion of their brain, they turn off reason. They stop thinking logically. They become reactionary and they are susceptible to believing bad things about gay people, gay men in particular. Leftists should know better, but if you were duped by this story, then I would encourage you to just try to do better and vet these claims and try to, you know, understand that due process is important, especially for um, historically marginalized communities. I mean, due process is important for, for anyone, of course, but I mean, like, you have to understand that when we're vetting these types of claims, old stereotypes have to come into play, and this was very clearly an attempt to play on that old gay predator stereotype, and it's disgusting, and you'd expect left allies who are, you know, in support of LGBTQ rights and queer people to not fall for this as easily, but the fact that they did, the fact that they were duped so easily by this ploy to help a corporate Democrat, it's deeply worrying, and as a movement, we have to try to do better and educate people about these things. Hi, everyone. I am back with Shahid Buttar running in the 12th Congressional District in California against Nancy Pelosi. As many of you saw on Friday, we released a video detailing some of the accusations uh, against Shahid Buttar, and he is here to basically clarify and uh, set the record straight. Shahid, thank you so much for coming back on. Thanks for having me on, Figueroa. It was great to be with you. Yeah, I um so basically I, I do want to update the viewers. Um so where we left off in that video was that I examined the two sets of allegations, one made by Elizabeth Croydon and the other made against staffers. Now, for an update, since I published that video, I have heard from four different staffers 
who either are currently employed by Shahid's campaign or have been, uh, and they're speaking out in defense of Shahid. The first one, who I won't name because I'm not sure if she wants to be named, has said that she thinks that you're a good boss. Another one penned a Medium post that I can link to down below saying that this is um, an unfair allegation. Another actually commented on the YouTube video saying that uh, she does not believe the accusations that you are a misogynist. Another had responded saying that they left the campaign also when others had left, but not necessarily because of you, but because of the campaign manager who left and is who the one who's basically making these allegations about misogyny and staff mistreatment and whatnot. So there's so much to unpack right now. And, and first and foremost, I just want the viewers to know that I am not unendorsing Shahid Batar. I still am supporting his campaign. So I'm laying out my bias right there so you know the position that I'm coming from. And I, I don't plan on grilling you during this interview. I, what I want to give you is the opportunity to respond because a lot of really big claims have been made against you. Um, and you haven't been given the platform to respond to this. So basically what I want here is clarification because what I see is a lot of internal um, campaign dynamics and drama going on. And as an outsider, I have no idea what's going on. You know, you have a group of people alleging one thing, another group defending you, and it's a lot to unpack. So just from the standpoint of you, can you respond to the staff mistreatment allegations? Yeah, the very first thing I'll say is that I was surprised to read the stories that emerged a few weeks ago. I'd never heard from anyone that they had experienced me in a gendered way in the workplace. I'd never heard from anybody that they'd, um, you know, had that uh, reflection on, on, on my showing up on the campaign or in my previous work over the last 20 years. The former staff who've shared their experiences recently never shared that reflection with me when they worked with me, and I hadn't heard it when they left. And so when I saw it in the press, I was alarmed. And I take it really seriously because I am not a misogynist. I am very committed to including all people. And however I intended to treat everyone equally, and I have always intended to treat people equally on the basis of all of our characteristics, I also recognize that their experience is their experience. And I can't refute it. You know, I have to own it. It's uh, if, if they felt that they experience gendered mistreatment in the workplace, I have to accept that responsibility. The buck stops with me and I acknowledge that experience. And I, I'm so very gravely sorry that anybody experienced me and as a boss in that way. And, uh, I'm, I, again, I'm, I'm, I've done a lot of soul searching and a lot of reflecting and a lot of checking in with current colleagues, with former colleagues, with people I've worked with for a long time going back decades to check in and explore what there is for me to learn here. And uh, among the things I've learned is that my intentions and my impacts might diverge. Um, did also learn that people in my longer standing past did not have any experiences that align with what I've read about in the press. And, and I was affirmed by the vast majority of the people I've worked with uh, uh, to, to do what I can to learn from the situation um, and also to just give thanks that I work with the team I work with now that is aligned with my vision and uh, very supportive of the campaign. What we're kind of seeing uh, based on the Intercept article published by uh, or written by Akila Lacey, one of the criticisms that I've seen brought to me by your current staffers who reached out to me after I published the video was that Akila Lacey interviewed a lot of former and current staffers but didn't actually share the positive experiences that they had shared during that article. And so at this point in time, we have, you know, 
some people saying one thing and other people saying another thing. But we do know that there is some type of kerfuffle that occurred after the March 3rd primary to where um, there was a spat between you and Emily Jones. Uh, she had apparently given the email where you apologized to her. And there was an exodus of some sort. And I've been hearing differing numbers about how many people left the campaign. Uh, can you talk through that incident, whatever it was? Because we don't necessarily, like to me, this this whole situation is really amorphous and it's difficult to grasp what happened. So from your perspective, can you kind of detail what exact, exactly that was all about? Because that's kind of what, as an outsider, it's difficult to, to pin down. Absolutely. And thanks for raising attention to that episode. So the March 3rd primary, I took second place and maybe the first Democrat to challenge Pelosi in a generation. And I asked for a strategy meeting the next morning. And so the strategy meeting that I had asked for that weekend uh, ended up being something much more like a sort of organized intervention in which, uh, you know, my staff was promoting a particular vision uh, that they had been committed to and that they organized several of my close supporters around. And uh, it was a very sharp pivot back to what we were trying to grow beyond. And I had, uh, you know, it was an unfortunate meeting. Um, it was a meeting that I think reinforced some divisions uh, it was a meeting that I think for me just exposed all the more the need for me to find a staff that was willing to effectuate the campaign that I would promised my supporters. And it was uh, it was frankly the, the beginning of the process that led me to the team I now have, which is uh, the when you referred to the exodus. So this, there was a lot of wild misrepresentation about that. So half a dozen full time employees left. That was it. And they left over the course of three months. So there was no even an exodus is frankly, a overrepresentation of what was ultimately a trickle. I had a slow departure of a series of people. And at each point, when someone found their way off the team to pursue another opportunity, it was a great opportunity for us because the people that we brought in to fill the shoes of the folks who moved on, the new folks just had experiences and capacities and opportunities that the folks who left the campaign weren't able to bring to bear. And that's not a criticism of anyone. I would just note that when you are a grassroots candidate challenging the most powerful corporate politician on the planet, you don't get the most experienced campaign operatives beating down your door. And so I hired folks uh, into roles that they hadn't had a chance to play before. I you know, hoped there'd be a lot of collaborative opportunities there that was less available. And as I got to that point after the primary where we did very clearly establish that we had just fundamentally different visions for what the campaign would look like and what we'd be doing. Uh, you know, it's, and, and to sum it up, it's sort of the difference between a school board race and the kind of race that would beat the Speaker of the House. And I'm very eager to do the latter. And what my team understood how to do, you know, the nails that they had been hammers pounding for years in other campaigns uh, as canvassing directors and my campaign manager's case. And in the case of my other staff, you know, they'd been like volunteers on other previous campaigns. So on the previous campaigns that they ran, they were all local campaigns that didn't have the, the reach or the need to secure support from beyond the district in the way that the campaign that we're running has. And, you know, to some extent, the subsequent events kind of bore out that narrative as we brought in a new team. The campaign accelerated, it expanded. And uh, until these uh, hit pieces ran, you know, that was a pretty uh, uh, one-way trajectory. And while it has created a headwind, I'm grateful for the chance now and at other points to respond to these ac accusations. When I hear that there is just 
factually speaking, a high turnover rate, that to me usually it is a red flag. But when you get a little bit more of, you know, the puzzle pieces come together, um, it's it's a little bit more complex than that. So I'm curious. So you say six people leave as of um, after that March 3rd uh, intervention or debacle. Actually, you know, one of them had been with us for about six weeks. Two of them had been with us for a couple months. And uh, another one had, had barely joined the team. So the only person who'd been with us for any length of time when they left was my campaign manager. And she'd been with me for about nine months. So my question is, did they leave specifically because they were disagreeing with you or had issues with you? Or did they leave because the campaign manager was leaving and they were kind of like following? It was like a mutiny. Um, did anyone else leave because they had disagreements with the campaign manager? Because I, I do know that based on the one person that I heard from, they left because they, uh, like you, had disagreements with the campaign manager. So can you talk to like why those six people left in particular? Yeah. The six full-time staff who I'm referring to, a bunch of contractors who that worked with my campaign manager when she left, they left with her. So that was when the Intercept misrepresented the number as something over a dozen. They were including a bunch of contractors who, you know, they were like five, ten hours a week on the campaign. So far from full-time employees. The other folks who left, I think in each case, it was uh, people discovering maybe that the fit wasn't as good and finding other opportunities. You know, my finance director, the former finance director, Emily, you mentioned, uh, you know, she was with us for about six weeks. And uh, unfortunately, we had a hard time working together. And as soon as she found her way to other opportunities, within two months, our fundraising doubled. Uh, and it wasn't work that she put in place. This was work that we were able to do once we had the team clear of the challenges that we had internally. You know, I, I, I experienced some of my colleagues as unfortunately rowing in other directions. And, you know, that was true in everything from uh, strategy conversations to, frankly, just work product. You know, um, it's challenging as a candidate. You're very reliant on your staff. And, you know, when uh, just to give an example, you know, you, you mentioned one of my colleagues, like to get a set of postcards ready to, for me to send to supporters with the stamps on them and everything. And they've been sent to the printers and a whole design process. And all I'm supposed to do is sign them and drop in the mail and they all have a typo on them. That's really frustrating, and that's far short of any acceptable professional standard. And that's kind of what I was dealing with the whole time. And, you know, I think people got frustrated with falling short of my expectations and my responses. Uh, I will say that uh, I was disappointed a lot. I wouldn't describe my feedback to my team from my perspective as gender, but I also recognize that, again, everybody has their own experience and, and, and I have to acknowledge the validity of the experience that they've shared, even if it wasn't one that I heard at the time. And even if it wasn't one, you know, when each of those people left the team, we checked in. And in each case, my understanding of it was we had amicably decided to part ways because I wanted to do something in our campaign that they weren't necessarily supportive of. Uh, and I think that that reveals itself in uh, the recent accusations, but I don't think that necessarily roots itself in misogyny. I think that roots itself in a campaign disagreement that seems to be uh, lent itself to other terms. Sure, sure. Um, I, I'm still trying to pin down the amount of people who left. So with regard to the high turnover rate, that's kind of what I want to establish. So I've heard so many different numbers. I've heard 17 people left. I've heard 12 people left. I've heard six people left. So okay. is it that 
in total like over the course of a short period of time a lot of people left or was the only main campaign exodus after March 3rd has there been any other instances where there's been a large number of people collectively leave can you give us a general sense of the turnover um how frequently people leave because like people you know with campaigns they're fluid like people come and go all the all of the time what we're trying to pinpoint is if there's anything irregular with respect to your campaign right and I would say there have been two ways there was a wave when we retooled after the primary, when my former colleagues found their way to other opportunities, and we brought in particularly veterans from Bernie's campaign. Uh, so we brought a bunch of people in to the campaign this spring after I won the primary who had experience running a campaign at the scale that we're going to need to grow to to beat the Speaker of the House. There was another wave as we were complying with, uh, there was a law passed in California, AB5, which changes the designation of contractors to employees. And so we had to basically let some out-of-state contractors go, people who were like making phone, uh, paid phone calls for us. So that was another uh, wave, but that was that had nothing to do with the campaign um, or you know reflections on it. That was just compliance issue, basically. Uh, so there was a wave. And when I say a wave after the primary, it was about three months that the half dozen full-time employees left. And we, we didn't lose any more than that. There were a number of contractors and, you know, the numbers that you were citing, I don't know, I've never heard 17. I don't even know if we've, I guess we have had that many people if you count all the part-time folks. Uh, but the, the people who left after the primary were ultimately a handful. And then it was not many more than that. Uh, the, the contractors who left included, the Intercept, for instance, included in their number, everyone who worked at the PR agency who worked on our campaign <laughs> including people who barely worked on our campaign. They included people who'd spent like five hours a week writing emails. They included people who, you know, a whole bunch of contractors who'd done like very specific pieces of work. And the critical thing I'd say here in terms of that turnover, one reason I was so glad for it to happen is because when the former staff ran the campaign, there was a frustration for me in terms of encouraging those paid campaign staff to accept the help from skilled volunteers who had come out of the woodwork to support me. And as a candidate, part of my job is to secure support. And any number of people with skills, from uh, writing to graphic design, uh, organizing events, came forward to help and reported to me a consistent challenge in my staff not letting them participate. And so we were limited by the staff's insistence on centering themselves at the middle of the campaign. And, and the essence of our disagreement was my insistence that we let volunteers do the work. Ideally, in a campaign that grows to scale, the staff coordinates and coaches and holds space for volunteers to do the work. Because frankly, I can't pay enough people to win the campaign. But I have that much support if the people I paid would support those people and create structures and processes and teams. But that was not the interest for my previous campaign staff. And that's why we butted heads a lot. And one reason we accelerated so much is that as each of those people found their way off, in many cases, we filled their shoes with volunteers. And frankly, I have so many more people on the team now precisely because my current campaign staff recognizes the role as one to facilitate volunteer engagement, to engage volunteers as opposed to perceive them as a threat or unreliable or flaky or all the things I heard from my former colleagues. You know, a lot of this story has been presented in the press as workers concerned about their boss. And at the end of the day, I'm accountable to my volunteers and my donors, and I have to deliver the campaign that they wanted. And, you know, one that was being 
claimed and limited by a staff that was unwilling to effectuate the vision, you know, I, I wouldn't be doing right by my supporters if I conceded to allow the campaign staff to limit the operation in that way. So ultimately, you know, that meeting after the primary, the ensuing trickle of departures and the people that we recruited to fill uh, those, those slots, all of that, I would describe as a growing pain. Uh, it was certainly challenging at times, uh, but I did never experience it and nobody told me that they experienced it at the time or any time since until a few weeks ago as gendered. Gender didn't seem to have any role to play in the dynamic that was unfolding. Uh, and, and again, I'm so apologetic to the extent anybody experienced gender in this process. And, and I was just very surprised to learn of it, uh, when it, when it did come forward, you know, I mean, one of the things that was also challenging as the stories emerged was to hear from all the other volunteers who emerged with backstories claiming to have been approached by my former colleagues, uh, to participate in, uh, their, uh, I, I don't even know what to call it. Uh, the volunteers had words of their own. Um, you know, one of them shared some texts that were very alarming to me to read uh, texts between a campaign volunteer and my former staff. And, uh, you know, I, those haven't been publicly reported to the extent, uh, you know, you have anything to say about them as a journalist. I'd be curious. Yeah, I'm just getting them um, right before this interview. I got them. So I got a chance to glance over them. I will put them up on the screen. But it's a red flag for me in the sense that it looks as if they're trying to rally people to a particular position. For me, like I'm sensitive to the power imbalance between employers and employees, which is why, you know, we always want to really vet the claims of, of uh, people that are making, you know, when there's this this organizational hierarchy. But in terms of like that type of interpersonal relationships and drama that can occur organically. I don't want to rule that out as well, too, because as I mentioned in the video, I was a boss um, shortly, you know, at Blockbuster before it all closed down. So for a couple of months, you know, I was in that position. And, you know, even though I'm still friends with everyone who were my coworkers today, none of them accused me of being a bad boss. But when I look back to particular um, conversations that I had, I think that I handled it completely inappropriately in the sense that I was really rude. Like I was um, a little bit too demanding, um, just trying to fulfill the corporate goals so I wouldn't have to put in more time when I was already underpaid myself. So like, you know, it's, it, we're trying to balance multiple things here and trying to get to the bottom of this and figure out like where the truth lies and whose experiences are, you know, are not just valid, but like who really feels that they were wronged. Um, now, on that note, in terms of like the turnover and whatnot, one of the individuals who had left is Jasper Weld. Uh, she penned a Medium post where um, she broadens the claim of misogyny. And what she basically alleges is that she had helped you plan your sex schedule. Now, after speaking with one of your current campaign staffers, they say what she referred to as a sex schedule was something as simple as a vacation between you and your girlfriend. So can you respond to that? Because that to me is what caught me a little bit off, off guard. Caught me off guard. <laughs> I, it was, uh, alarming. It, 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 it felt violating. Uh, you know, my former campaign manager basically outed my relationship paradigm. Uh, and I, you know, that wasn't something that I'd chosen to be public about. And, you know, among my partners, one of them in particular felt quite aggrieved by 
feels quite aggrieved by this characterization of ultimately like us having, you know, I'd, I'd work seven days a week and I'd work six nights a week. And usually campaign managers manage a candidate's schedule. And so when someone would ask me when we could have dinner, I wouldn't necessarily know. And on at least, you know, a couple occasions, Jasper is the person who said when I'd be available to have a night off work. And then the idea that that's presumed to be about sex and then that it's published, you know, it just certainly felt, uh, I mean, I don't know what to say about it really. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I'm just running a campaign. Here. Yeah. Uh, when I initially read the workplace um, story, I was a little bit conflicted because I didn't have all of the details. Uh, having said that, I'm, I'm moving closer to this just being like a big question mark because again i wasn't there and i'm an outsider and i just i see competing claims against people but i i think that we're we're still going to always have that open question um and you know you you kind of admit or alluded to the fact that you're a little bit of a tough boss um and we're all human beings so i mean what can you if say I'm to people boss piece, just right there I, I wouldn't say that i'm a tough boss hmm. i just insist on quality you know i i i'm i'm I hold myself to a high standard and I want my team to make sure that we're meeting professional standards. You know, typos and printed material are not acceptable. Blocking volunteers from participating and extending the campaign, that's not acceptable. I don't think it's being a tough boss to simply maintain basic standards on a campaign. I, I, I don't think that is makes me a tough boss. And I don't think that my current colleagues would perceive me as a tough boss. You know, I, well, I mean, I think, but I would, someone listening would say, well, that's something a tough boss would say. I insist on quality. Well, what's your standards? Are they up here? Are they like acceptable? Um, so that's why I'm just curious, like in terms of you as, as an individual, because people are going to make mistakes. Everyone is a human being. Like in terms of you, like I'm, I, this is difficult because I'm kind of asking you to critique yourself as a leader, you know, in this organization, not like as a leader in terms of like the congressional level, but just as a leader of this group of people. I don't know how many are there, a hundred, you know, a few dozen. Um, you know, is there anywhere where you think that you could make some improvements, particularly after hearing these criticisms, some of which you don't agree with, some of which are, you know, puzzling to you, such as the misogyny claim, like just in terms of yourself, if you could be introspective and critique yourself, um, what do you think you could you could do better to assure people that, you know, this isn't going to be an issue if there was an issue? So one of them, uh, in terms of the opportunities for me to learn and grow from all this that I've taken very, very seriously is the need to be very cautious with my feedback and particularly to include in critical feedback, positive encouragement too, noting the areas where people are getting it right, you know, to make sure that I've heard this described as the feedback sandwich and just making sure that critical feedback is couched in terms that reinforce the overarching, you know, goal of the working relationship. So that's a concrete opportunity. I've, you know, learned uh, that opportunity. Another one that for me has been really critical is the need to, when proposing opportunities to my staff, to suggest them as invitations, as distinct from directives. And, you know, that begets just a very different opportunity for people to own and co-own those ideas. And, you know, that's just an organizing principle. And I apply it to my volunteers. You know, the opportunity to apply that across the team uh, is one that's proven opportune. Uh, and that's one, frankly, that I've long done with folks on the team who align with the vision. And when we butt heads around the strategic vision, it's very difficult to find tactical alignment. And so that's really where a lot of these tensions, I think, adhered. Um, I've learned a lot about hiring processes and what to vet for when hiring folks uh, around not just a willingness to take on a target 
but a shared fidelity to a vision and a movement. You know, I, I hired professional campaign operatives for what is a movement grassroots campaign. And the grassroots and the movement orientations were not ones that the professional campaign operatives shared. Uh, so I, I now have new campaign operatives who share that vision. And that's a really important, a more important thing for me to have tested for originally than simply skill set plus willingness to take on Pelosi. Um, you know, those are some of the things I've learned in this process. Um, you know, I've also learned about the distinction between intent and impact and whatever my intent to treat people equally on the basis of all characteristics. Uh, I've also learned about how impacts can be internalized differently. Uh, I've, I've also learned what it's like to be, you know, this is the first time uh, for me as a man of color that I've been falsely accused. And I've learned a lot about what racism looks like in practice and how a race to judgment and an unwillingness to consider facts. You know, there's, there are groups that have endorsed me, disendorsed me recently, rescinded their endorsements after affirmatively declining to consider any facts and rejecting evidence, rejecting witnesses, racing to judgment. And, you know, all I can say here is that I'm really grateful that it's not any worse for me. I'm far from the first man of color to be falsely accused of a sexual impropriety by white women. And, and I'm glad that it hasn't been any worse for me. It's been a lot worse for some of those other people who had to deal with that experience in the past. And I think that for a city as progressive as San Francisco and, you know, bodies that include socialists to have effectively embraced a racist willingness to privilege accusation before fact and process and truth. For me, it's been very disappointing to witness so many people fall prey to that allure. And, you know, we, we have process for a reason. And, and, and I certainly am inclined uh, to let people's truth be heard. I think that's different than race to judgment on the basis of everything that one hears. Yeah, and I'm actually glad that you touched on that because I watched an interview with Alex Morris, who is another congressional candidate who is basically being criticized by college Democrats in his state. And he touches on this point that I think is really important that you just touched on about implicit biases when vetting these types of claims and how we have to ensure due process, especially for historically marginalized communities. Because in his instance, he brought up the point, something that I can identify with personally, of gay men kind of being perceived to be like, you know, predatory, you know, and promiscuous. And the same is attributed to people of color. So I think that when you made this initial claim, um, the way that you responded immediately and, you know, asked for due process, I think that was commendable because what we kind of see um, with other leaders in this country uh, when they're accused of something like this, especially ones with privilege, like Joe Biden, for example, um, which are far more serious, but just, you know, as an example, they just pretend like it doesn't exist, whereas people of color, they don't have that luxury, you know. So I'm glad that you, you're bringing this up because I think it's an important component that's crucial. And it's something that we have to consider when we are vetting these types of claims. Um, another thing that you brought up that I empathize with was, you know, your criticisms of yourself as a boss, because as you list these things, I kind of like I, I empathize with that because like there's no handbook on how to be a good or effective boss. And I feel like everyone who is in that position of power in that workplace just face plants immediately. I, I consider myself, you know, as, as someone like that as well. I'm not saying that's the same thing for you, but it's it's a learning experience. And, you know, trying to reorient yourself, you know, learning about the individuality of each person who you're working with, it is a learning process. It's tricky. Um, so like I, I really appreciate you 
speaking to that because I know it's not difficult. It, it sucks that you're, you've been on the defensive now for the majority of this or for the entirety of this interview um, when your campaign really is historic. So um, in terms of the workplace issue, for me, I, I think that this, in my opinion, I feel better about it after hearing from you and from some of your staffers, although there's going to be, you know, residual concern about that. But I mean, I think people have to make the decision for themselves in that district. Me as someone who isn't in that state, I won't be able to cast a vote. So I think, you know, this is something that voters are going to have to decide for themselves. One, um, area that I want to move on to is the Elizabeth Croydon allegations, where in my video, I ultimately concluded that there wasn't enough evidence. Uh, and the credibility um, was something that I was concerned with, because she had also made allegations of other people. Uh, she accused them of being a witch. She accused someone of knowingly spreading HIV to people. Um, so to me, um, I have a couple of questions just to ask you about with regard to that because this to me it seems like there's a lot of people in that san francisco activist area that's like in the same social circle so i'm curious so you had a great open letter penned on your behalf by individuals like margaret flowers uh like Medea benjamin um do they know elizabeth croydon personally of your knowledge because they made some pretty serious allegations against her um and i'm curious can you confirm that they know elizabeth croydon or were they just speaking on your behalf um Tell us about that dynamic there, because that's something that I don't know personally. Yeah, I don't want to speak to other people's experience. Everybody who wrote that letter does know both me and Liz. Okay. Liz okay. wrote a set of accusations that involve social settings. And so one might think that the people in those social settings might have seen what she described. And so all those people wrote a letter to say this didn't happen. Uh, and when you were describing some of the things, uh, the... Uh, there are other journalists that have started exploring the facts that evaded the San Francisco Chronicle and the Intercepts reporting. Uh, Jacqueline Thompson, in particular, has uncovered a great many things. And all I knew about Liz was my experience with her, which included a series of accusations going back 10 years. You know, Liz Croydon has accused me of murdering one of my best friends. She's accused me of human trafficking. This was long before the recent harassment allegation. And just to be clear, my former staff is why Liz Croydon's story came out. They, we know that they coordinated with her to bring her story out, even though Liz Croydon's background, as everyone who's known her, has attested in public, suggests perhaps that these accusations are grounded in something other than truth. Um, I, other people have written about this, and I'm not going to attack my accuser or right. impugn them, but I would invite you to read any of the things that have been read. You know, Gloria Berry here in San Francisco wrote a really important piece about the issues with my former staff. Jacqueline's written a series of really important pieces about Liz. As we're describing Liz, I think the part of the discussion that's gotten lost in the conversation is how it got presented as related to my staff's concerns in the first place, right? I mean, I said before that when my staff had moved on to other opportunities, I'd never heard anything about gender treatment. My impression is that when my staff became convinced I was a misogynist is when they found Liz Croydon. And the idea that Liz's allegations would turn people I'd employed to then think that I am a predator such that they would then spread her false accusations uh, and use them to promote their own recharacterization of their experience with me. Uh, you know, all of it is disappointing and and at least reflective of very interesting dynamics in journalism that I think would lend themselves to meta stories, you know, how these things came to light, 
who did the embargoed press releases come from in the first place? How was there such sophistication around this? Uh, you know, I think those are interesting questions that I'm eager for someone to explore and investigate. Yeah, and you alluded to this, but you can confirm that Jacqueline Thompson does, in fact, know Elizabeth Croydon. Jacqueline does not. Is ever, uh, no, maybe she does. I or don't actually know. Jacqueline, Jacqueline is the person who penned the six-part medium yeah, piece. Jacqueline's a journalist, as far as I know. I, I, oh, okay. I know Jacqueline. Um, Jacqueline approached me after the stories ran, and, and I think I she said that she had either... I think she might have her own story with Liz. There's a Los Angeles scene with Liz that I had know nothing about. I only know Liz from D.C., Okay. And okay. I know the other people in D.C. and myself who she's alleged to various things. But the Los Angeles community was entirely new to me. Uh, and the San Francisco press reported her accusations as if, you know, I'm the first person she's ever accused. And, 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 and even people, I mean, one of the things about this that I found most alarming, you were referring a minute ago, I didn't get a chance to respond to your comment about Jasper's latest medium piece where she describes in it, she, she, she says something about being disappointed that the campaign she worked on uh, would be embroiled in sexual assault claims. And just to be clear, no mm -hmm. one's ever alleged that of me. And the only person who's alleged anything, Liz, who my former staff brought forward, alleged harassment. So my staff is literally misrepresenting even the allegations that they themselves brought forward. And this exaggeration Beyond innuendo, there's no actual incident that anybody's been able to point to. And so this exaggeration of allegation beyond even what the accusation was at the first point, and you know, none of the accusations are, are grounded in fact, certainly with respect to Liz. Again, acknowledging that if people experience misogyny in the workplace, I acknowledge their experience and I apologize for it. And at least the facts that they're grounding those experiences on are wildly misrepresented. And that's true in both parts of the story, unfortunately. Uh, and, and I do find that, as a person of color falsely accused standing at the center of it, more than a little disappointing. That's basically what I wanted to establish with regard to uh, that story, because I think there's enough there to where you can say, we definitely need more evidence. Um, but there was a lot of people who made allegations against Croydon, and I just wanted to confirm that these people do know, and they're not just like randos, you know, making these claims. To me, what was a red flag? It's alleged anything of Liz, as far as I know, not that I've seen. There, there's been reporting about other people's uh, being accused by. Right, 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 right. But what I've seen is um, they've claimed that she's made false accusations and has, you know, harassed people and whatnot, but we won't get into that. I don't want to attack her or smear her. Um, but for me, I was trying to establish, you know, that these people did in fact know Elizabeth Croydon because of what they're saying, you know, is there validity, validity to that? And it does seem like that tends to be the case. To me, what was the... Um, you might want to just ask Jacqueline about that because I don't know those people. Sure, sure. Jacqueline's a journalist. I've just, okay. I've learned reading her posts. Okay, okay, yeah. I, was, I wasn't I was sure about that. That's where I got the bulk of the information about Croydon from was from Jacqueline, but then there was also other individuals who were within that DC activist circle, and uh, I'm assuming within the LA, uh, San Francisco circle, who knew her as well. So there's like this huge web that I'm trying to connect, and it just gets really confusing after a while. So I just wanted to at least at a minimum establish that they did yeah. have that interpersonal relationship. So that way we're not just reporting what some like random person had said on Twitter. Uh, but for me, the reason why I wanted to wait was because almost immediately when I, I found out about the original allegation that she had brought forward with the article, there were tweets that people had screen capped where there's really racially coded language used against you that had really 
it stood out in my mind. Now, because someone uses racially coded language, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's impossible that they're victims of something. But, you know, you have to basically allow due process. That's that's the entire point. And I think that like thoroughly vetting all of this from a journalistic standpoint is important. And I, I should note that I'm not a journalist. I'm a political commentator. I just took hours and hours and hours to go through all of these different like posts and tweets. And it's it's complicated, right? But, you know, at the end of the day, I, as I stated earlier, people have to decide for themselves within your district. And I just want to kind of give you the final word because we've gone through a bevy of different accusations against you. And I think that we owe it to you to kind of uh, use this platform to say what you need to before we close um, to anyone who uh, has heard this about you. And, uh, you know, just kind of um, speak your piece, uh, allow yourself the chance to defend yourself because we have quotes from The Intercept from you, but, you know, that's selectively edited. I don't necessarily know whether or not you would you would say that they accurate, accurately represent your position. But uh, just basically take it away uh, unedited and let us know what you want us to know about this situation overall to kind of put a, a bow on this at this point. Thank you, Mike. And I would say even if you don't uh, consider yourself a journalist, you're doing a much better job of uncovering the facts than the people who do. <laughs> I'm trying. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, again, I, I was surprised by what I learned and read about in the press and it alarmed me precisely because I'm I'm not eager to replicate the problems in the world that we're all trying to fight to overcome. And and among those, frankly, are, are gender discrimination and and the patriarchy. I'm not trying to replicate those things. And so I was very disturbed by the idea that anyone would have experienced me in those terms. And it's one reason why I've spent so much time both reflecting and checking in with people over, you know, I've worked with for, for years to, to check in and learn from that. And that's something I take really seriously. And as I've learned more facts, particularly from the campaign volunteers who've come forward to report their own experiences, their experiences with my former staff when we worked together, their experiences with my former staff since they left the campaign in the weeks preceding, in the days preceding these articles coming out, those particularly alarmed me. You know, you talked about the need for vetting. I think these stories not only were not vetted, but how the stories came to light has not been vetted. And there is a story there that has not been reported. Um, you know, to see so many local organizations, um, you know, from the Tenants Union to Democratic Socialists of America, effectively embrace institutional racism by ignoring facts and openly privileging accusation and relationship over any fidelity or pretense to care about what the truth is has been especially disappointing. I mean, so many people who, you know, have presented themselves to me as allies and supporters have been willing to effectively just take the first accusation and presume its legitimacy. And as a person of color and an immigrant challenging the most powerful white woman on the planet at the moment, it is very disturbing <laughs> to be um, presumed guilty without any shred of fact to back it up um and i you know for me it's disappointing not just about like those supporters but it is very disappointing for me about what it indicates about our country i fear maybe that we get the democracy we deserve and i hope for it to be better than that that's why i'm running and i'd say that it's very opportune whatever else one might say for the speaker of the house for two months to be remaining until ballots are going to drop for the vote by mail month and she's not uh, you know, at least I, what I'm talking about at the moment is is this set of allegations and not her continuing support for corporate rule and the climate catastrophe that continues to unfold, 
the pandemic with its various racial and economic disparities, the coming eviction crisis that is already unfolding around the country because corporate Democrats aren't showing up for our communities. And I'd rather, frankly, be talking about that and the opportunity to get San Francisco a voice in Congress aligned with our city uh, instead of you know just noting the fact that I do, in fact, I have, in fact, I will continue to embody the principles I espouse. And for people who care enough about the facts to investigate them, uh, to care enough about the truth, not to race to judgment on the basis of false accusation, I think that fidelity will reveal itself. And, and I'm grateful for everybody who has stuck, stuck with me through these uh, accusations and, and been willing to consider uh, all sides of the story instead of just what was included at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And uh, thank you so much for saying that. Um, I appreciate you choosing to, um, you know, come on and actually clarify all of these things. You know, usually when I reach out to politicians and I ask for a response and on the record response, I don't expect to reply. But what I got from you and your team was we'll come on the show, which is something that has never happened. Um, usually when you criticize someone, um, even if you you try to present yourself in a good faith manner, you know, it's difficult because we're human beings. We we recoil at, you know, people saying things about us that are are bad, right? So, you know, I appreciate the fact that you took the time to really explain after I posted a video where basically I was critical of you. You know, that, that means a lot. Um, it speaks to you, you know, really caring and committing to, you know, uh, getting the truth out there. And I appreciate the fact that you're still fighting um, and challenging Nancy Pelosi because what's at stake in this election it's just it's so much that we can't overlook that, like the amount of people, quite frankly, who are going to die because they don't have health care, uh, who will be evicted. That's something that we can't, you know, overlook and be distracted by. Um, so, you know, I, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, come in and speak about all of this. I know it's uncomfortable um, and awkward, but, uh, you know, the fact that you're here, um, it, I think it speaks a lot. It means a lot to me, man. I appreciate the forum and I ran for office. You know, I expected uh, for there to be uncomfortable moments. I didn't expect this set of circumstances to emerge, right? This is hardly what I uh, necessarily thought I was signing up for, but I will say that, you know, the chance to learn and grow in public is a welcome one. Uh, the chance to see the truth emerge after being accused is an especially welcome one. So thank you for being an agent of the truth. You know, there's been, it's been in short supply in San Francisco over the last few weeks, but I'm glad to see it start to emerge. Yeah, yeah. As, as long as we get as close as we possibly can to the objective truth, then I think that I've done my job as like a commentator at, at informing my audience. Um, and I felt the need to speak out because I had endorsed you and not just endorsed you and interviewed you, but made videos where, you know, I'm promoting you. I felt like I was obligated to speak out, um, but not just, you know, because I had to be consistent in terms of like the way I respond to these types of allegations under this big umbrella, but because I think that, you know, seeing this, I was concerned that nobody had properly vetted all of this when there's so much counter information out there. And to me, I felt like this presented an opportunity to maybe like try to find out what's happening, you know, so um, that's that's my uh, that's my attempt here. So I hope that this was illuminating for a lot of people who watched um, again. Shahid, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Hi, I'm Melba Pearson and I'm running for Miami-Dade County State Attorney. Catherine Fernandez-Rundle, in her 27 years in office, has never once filed charges against a police officer for an on-duty killing. I'm running to bring common sense reforms to our county and to stand up to bad cops and to corrupt elected officials 
who choose to harm our community. Before you vote on August 18th, you need to learn the facts about Catherine Fernandez Rundle. And what you may hear may shock you and horrify you. Darren Rainey was in custody at Dade Correctional Institute here in Miami-Dade County, serving a sentence for cocaine possession. He was placed in a scalding hot shower that ranged in temperature from 160 to 180 degrees by four correctional officers. They left him there for nearly two hours as he begged and screamed and pleaded for his life. The officers laughed and left him in there to die. Catherine Fernandez Rundle did not file charges against these correctional officers. If I was your state attorney, I would have filed charges. It is time for change. It is time for bad officers to be held accountable. And the opponent has made it very clear that she cannot do so. I humbly ask for your vote and your support on August 18th. Be sure to punch number 24 for change and accountability. Hello, everyone. I am here with a phenomenal candidate running to be state attorney in Florida. Her name is Melba Pearson, and she is challenging someone who has been in office for a very long time. Her name is Catherine Fernandez Rundle, and uh, Melba's here to talk about her campaign. So, Melba, thank you so much for coming on the program. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for having me on. Super excited for our discussion today. Yeah, I'm excited because you have this really dynamic career. You were a prosecutor. You then went on to work for the ACLU. You were then instrumental in getting the voting rights amendment passed um, on the ballot in Florida. And now you're running to be state attorney. What catalyzed this run? A few things. So it started off with a series of high profile failures by my opponent, including the Darren Rainey case, which was an African-American man who was basically boiled to death in a prison shower. And my opponent chose not to file charges in that, clay, in that case. Also, the case of Jesus Medical, who was a Hialeah, is a city here in, in uh, Dade County, police sergeant who was sexually assaulting women and underage girls. And yet again, no justice was found at all for the survivors of that horrible crime. So in 27 years, she's never filed charges against a police officer for a non-duty killing. So as like all of those failures just keep kept compounding, compounding, it just really just kept sitting on my heart that I need to do something. And what really finalized it was talking to uh, people that I had hired, that I had mentored over at the state attorney's office, they literally begged me to run. They were like, this is not the office you left. This is not the kind of environment that you had worked so hard to cultivate amongst those that you supervised. So we really need you for this change. And it was just like, whoa, okay. Like that, that really got me. And so that's why I decided to raise my hand and step up to this challenge. Yeah, and this really, like hearing the details about the failings of your opponent, it's honestly like, I don't think there's any words to really uh, characterize the situation appropriately. I mean, the Darren Rainey case is so extreme. And, you know, it's an instance of state sanctioned abuse against someone. And if you don't prosecute someone who boiled a man alive, I don't know when you do prosecute. Like, wh what is your job? Like, at what point do you seek out justice? Um, so can you talk a little bit more about the specifics? I know that viewers kind of got a taste of that with the ad that we introed at the beginning of this video, but talk more to the specifics about the Darren um, Rainey case. This to me 
it should be like a national story. There should be national outrage. But we haven't heard very much. But in, you know, your city, uh, in your state, I know you're from Miami-Dade. It is a big story. So tell us about the specifics, because anyone who hears about this, there's no way they're not going to be uh, furious. Yeah, so it, it, it's, a, it's a strange story from the standpoint of it's taken ebbs and flows. So it's gotten a little bit of attention and then it kind of died down and then the attention came back and died down again. So now we're seeing renewed interest because I've made it one of the central issues of my campaign because I want people to understand when they actually have a case that they can attribute to someone that just smacks of injustice, that is going to motivate them to go to the polls. So I just want to make sure that the people are educated on this issue. So Darren Rainey was an African-American man who was struggling with the disease of schizophrenia. He was using street level drugs to self-medicate, which is not uncommon for people who struggle with mental illness in the system. If they're not able to be connected to services or insurance, sometimes they use street level narcotics to be able to quiet the voices or deal with the symptoms. So he was in custody for uh, cocaine possession and was serving a two-year sentence, which is a separate issue in and of itself. But focusing on this case, he, um, you know, he had an outburst and he had defecated on himself and the guards decided to place him in the shower to be able to clean off. Now, the thing about that shower, it came out through testimony later on in the investigation that this was known as a punishment shower. So when you went into that shower, you had no control over the knobs to, you know, change the temperature or anything like that. They place you in the shower. So it's not like you can open the shower and get out yourself. You are locked in. So you are literally confined to this tiny shower and you had no control over your life or your destiny during that time. He was placed in the shower that ranged in temperature from 160 to 180 degrees Fahrenheit. This was shower was so hot. The staff members at the prison used that shower to make ramen noodles they would just literally stick the container in under the water and boom there's noodles were cooked right off like right off the top right so this was a known factor everyone knew that that shower was scalding hot he was left in there for two hours and during that time he screamed and he begged for his life and he kept saying to the officers i'm sorry i'll be good just take me out i'm sorry and they laughed and they're like, oh, is it hot enough for you yet? Are you clean yet? Ha ha ha. And they left him in there for two hours. So of course he passes away. And so the, then the cover up after that was, but was it really, you know, a homicide or did he die accidentally? And then all of this spirals. Now let's keep in mind, this case happened in 2012. It wasn't until the Miami Herald did an investigative story and they basically just did series after series of interviewing witnesses who had been writing, you know, fellow inmates had been writing the state attorney to say, this man was murdered. We are willing to testify. What do you need from us? This is injustice. These people need to be held accountable. And she just turned a deaf ear because I guess, you know, prisoners don't matter, right? So what ended up happening is after this expose series by the Miami Herald, then an investigation happened. So then at that point, there was an autopsy. How many years later? You know, at that point, they were like, well, let's see what we can do. And after a long investigation, and we're now looking at, you know, five years basically in total, my opponent releases a report that says, yeah, much as, it, as this was terrible, there's no charges I can file here because the medical examiner came back with a finding saying, oh, well, this was accidental. He kind of died from schizophrenia. Like it just, it, 
that whole report in and of itself is just an abomination. But be that as it may, you move forward with what you have. That's what you do as a prosecutor, right? You look at the evidence and you, you figure out whether or not there's a way to deliver justice to the families and the people who are impacted. And so my opinion, after looking at all the facts, looking at you know the testimony that was, was had, the video evidence, the medical examiner report, I came to the conclusion after being a prosecutor for 16 years, handling homicide, so I know these cases inside and out, that a manslaughter charge could have been filed. So I still look at this as a huge failure by my opponent to try to find justice for this family. And then on the same token, send a clear message to law enforcement, like you can't kill people. Like it's not okay. You can't just kill people with impunity, especially when you have a situation of somebody who's clearly helpless. He's not offering you violence. He's not, you know, trying to attack you or something. You placed him in a shower because he had a mental health issue. That's not okay. And we have to take a stand on that. So that's, you know, the, the fight still continues from the standpoint of when I'm elected, I'm going to review that case again and see if there's still the ability to bring charges because there is no what's called statute of limitations. There's no time limit on homicide in the state of Florida and manslaughter is included in that. So I'm going to see if we can still file charges. It's going to be tough this many years later, but we'll see if that's an option. Yeah, I think that just that you have the inclination to want to look into this further. I mean, that's a human response. Like, to, when you when you explain these details, just the fact that there is a punishment shower alone, I think should outrage everyone. But I mean, aside from the fact that, you know, there's the human element, it, it's heartbreaking. You know, if we don't actually get accountability and guards are allowed to get away with this, then I mean, what else can they can basically get away with anything? That's kind of the sentiment. And that's the worry. So I wanted to talk to you about your time as a prosecutor. You have a different philosophy than what I think a lot of people perceive prosecutors to you know, um, think of in terms of justice. You focus more on rehabilitation, not criminalization. Talk through why you think that is the best approach. I, I mean, I think my viewers, they would agree with you, but like as a prosecutor from the legal perspective, I think your standpoint really, um, it's important here. Yeah, so for me, it is about making sure that justice is equal and accessible and real to everybody in Miami-Dade County. That's my goal. And that's going to be my guiding principle when I'm elected next week on August 18th. But for me, it's about you know, making sure that we're also addressing the root causes of crime. Because too often people are like, ah, just throw them in jail and that's supposed to fix things. Jail is not a magic fix, right? And especially if you're sending people into custody without programming. So what ends up, ends up happening I know this is not unique to Florida and it happens in other states, but when the legislature and the governor is like, okay, we need to balance the budget, we need to cut funding, the first thing they do is slash prison budgets and they slash all of the beneficial programs that are community-based that can help people or the funding to those programs. And why that's so problematic is that these programs address the root causes of crime. If you're not addressing the addiction, when the person gets out of prison, the first thing they're going to do is go get high. And that already now starts to spiral all over again, right? If you're not addressing the mental illness, making sure that they have being connected to services or connected with a team that's going to help them manage their symptoms, we're going to have the same issues over and over again. If we don't address the fact that people may not have vocational training or may not know how to apply for a job from the simple standpoint of, you know, let's say you're a survivor of human trafficking. You've been on the streets, you know, working in that life for many years. You maybe have a GED. How do you go apply for a job? 
Like, how do you even message the fact that you've been out of the workforce for five years because you were you were human trafficked, right? Like, but but you need someone to help you with that. And if we're not funding folks that can help in those ways, then we're not addressing the problem. And we're going to keep seeing the same issues of people coming into the system, offending, reoffending because they have no other option. So let's do what we can to address the root issue. And then we have safer communities on the back end. And that's a better community for everyone. And also that's the other way to make sure the system is equitable because oftentimes what you see people with needs when they come into the system, let me give you an example of, of two Johnnies, right? You have Johnny that lives in, in Coral Gables, lives with a wealthy family and he gets arrested for breaking into a car to feed his addiction right and then you have johnny who lives in overtown which is an urban core neighborhood right under resource bad schools and he gets arrested for breaking into a car for the same addiction right well johnny from coral gables his family sends him to a lovely rehab facility up in delray beach where he's on the beach he plays the guitar he does yoga he meditates and 30 days later you know he's in a much better place right and so he comes back to court he's in a suit he's all clean the judge is like wow johnny you've done so well you know i'm going to dismiss charges against you or i'm going to reduce the plea that's been offered to make sure that you're able to go live a productive life but then you look at johnny from overtown Johnny from Overtown doesn't have those same resources. He doesn't have a family that's going to send him to a lovely rehab facility. He doesn't have the money to be able to bond out of jail before his case comes to trial. So he sits in custody. And then the judge looks at him and says, you're disheveled. You're in an orange jumpsuit. You know, I don't, I don't see a future for you. I'm going to sentence you to three years in prison. So how has his addiction been addressed? It hasn't. He's going to prison. He's now going to have a criminal conviction. And then when he gets out, it's going to be almost impossible to get a decent paying job because everyone's afraid to hire somebody with a criminal background. What do you think is going to happen to Johnny? It's going to end up being a downward spiral as opposed to Johnny from Coral Gables, who has now been given a second chance. So that is the inequity that we see in the system. And that's why it's so important for this programming to be robustly funded and to be able to help people who don't have the same means as others. Yeah. And I think that that is a really important approach for you to take as a prosecutor, right? I mean, just on you know a, a normal level, like if you don't know much about the law, then you can attribute the recidivism rate to people just making bad decisions. But like you you know alluded to earlier you're not addressing the root causes and you speak to these differences and why people end up you know ending in this uh this pipeline and they can't get out it's like a cycle that's never ending because of the system itself but i'm curious in your opinion why do other prosecutors not take the same approach they take a more punitive approach and they don't actually focus on you know rehabilitation i mean you can't psychoanalyze people but in your opinion like what are the institutional mechanisms that kind of cause people to be more harsh in uh administering you know the law and in, in in your opinion you know as prosecutors yeah, so a couple things. First off, there's an age thing. Because if you look at some of these um, offices across the country, there are prosecutors, for instance, I'm taking on an incumbent who's been there for 27 years. Uh, you know, in the county north of me, there's an open election for state attorney where the state attorney there is retiring after 44 years. So when you think about what the world was like 30 years ago, right? <laughs> there was barely any internet. There was definitely no Siri. There was no like Apple, you know, iPhone or anything like that, right? And the common mentality back then was tough on crime. 
You got to send people to prison. You know, that's the way you toughen people up and you know, you got to hold people accountable and all that. And so we've evolved as a country, we've evolved in our thinking, and we've also evolved in understanding the human mind to realize, again, if you don't address the root cause, you're going to have the same issues over and over again. And that tough on crime mentality is how we got here with the concept of mass incarceration. Because I grew up in New York in the 80s when the crack epidemic was in full swing. And I can assure you, Nobody looked at the crack epidemic as a public health crisis. It was viewed the only way to fix it was to incarcerate people. So whether you're struggling with addiction, you were, a, you know, the, the, the Frank Lucas, you know, top dog drug dealer of them all, or if you were the middle guy in between that just sells a little bit because his baby's hungry, all of you were going to prison. It didn't matter. So when you have all of these prosecutors who have been in office for so long, they still reflect that unevolved mentality that comes from that Reagan era, tough on crime mentality. The second thing that I think causes people to be so, so harsh and so punitive is, is public sentiment. So while public sentiment is shifting, if you're in a more conservative area, you may find that people again have that Reagan era mentality. And so, you're afraid, like, you listen, you answer to the voters, right? Like, if you're a state attorney, that's an elected position with the exception of, like, three or four jurisdictions where you're appointed. But the vast majority of prosecutors are elected. So you don't want to do something that's going to upset your voters, and then you're going to be out of a job. So there's that fear of coming, you don't want to look soft on crime, so you got to come out tough on crime, right? So the narrative that has definitely been shifting in favor of the progressive prosecutors around the country is to talk about being smart on crime, talk about rehabilitation and restoration, talking about making communities whole, like that sort of that more therapeutic approach that is definitely resonating with a lot more people. And it's starting to spread, especially when you think about if it's your family member or loved one in the system, you want to see them treated fairly and you want to see them get help so they don't do it again. So I think, again, we're evolving as a country, but there's still some pockets and some holdouts of people who firmly believe prison is a solution to everything. Yeah, and it is like I do see what you're speaking to in terms of like this evolution. I think that a lot of people aren't just changing their minds, but people are becoming aware of the humanity of prisoners for the first time because we've seen it portrayed in you know in, in media in movies that criminals they're just they're inherently bad there's something about them that drives them to do bad things and now we we've gone gone so far in the opposite direction that we're talking about you know voting rights for felons and even if that's still controversial to a lot of people you know recognizing the humanity of people in prison is something that i think i wouldn't have expected yet you know with how how cynical I, you know, I, I become when I see some of the things that Americans espouse on television and some of the views we still have to see kind of this move. It is encouraging. And, you know, you have been on, you know, the front lines fighting to make sure that, you know, people who have been incarcerated, they have their rights. So can you talk through the voting rights amendment that you were instrumental in passing? Because this to me, seeing that like the the outcome in the 2018 election in Florida was puzzling to so many people because on one hand, you see them elect Ron DeSantis, but on another hand, they vote to, you know, re-enfranchise felons. Talk through, you know, what you think maybe was the key thing that led to people changing their minds. 
Yeah. So, you know, first off, I have to say that criminal justice reform as a general premise has become a bipartisan issue, right? At first it was like, oh my gosh, it's just a liberal agenda. Da, 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 da. It's just the Democrats or whatever. But, you know, you find more conservative voices now speaking out in favor of criminal justice reform because they see the economic benefit. Because when it comes to lost wages or because people have are survivors of a crime and they have to take off from work to, to go to court and testify and all of that, they see that. They look at the cost of incarceration and how much it costs to keep the average person in prison, you know, each and every day or for, you know, on, on an annual basis. That, again, is a lot of money. So they're seeing that waste of taxpayer dollars and they skew more on the side of reform, as seen by the Federal First Step Act and in Florida, the Florida First Step Act. So turning to Amendment 4, that was probably the highlight of my professional career. So I joined the ACLU of Florida in early 2017. And at that point, we were reviewing the language to make sure that it could go uh, up to the Supreme Court in Florida to make the decision if the language is good enough to go on the ballot, that the voters won't be confused and you know that the subject was clear and all that. So I helped with that. Then for the next few months, it was about voter education because we had to get a million petitions signed to be able to get it on the ballot because it was a citizen's initiative. So we had to educate folks as to why they should sign the petition. Fine, we got the million signatures, awesome, boom, it's on the ballot. Now it's educate everyone as to why they should vote yes. And so part of the messaging was around second chances and that if someone has paid their debt to society, then they should be able to vote and have all the benefits of rejoining society. And also, this amendment was bringing us in line with the rest of the country, because at the time, we were only one of four states that has a permanent ban on voting by people with felony convictions. In the complete other side of it, Maine and Vermont allow you to vote while you're in custody. So if you're in jail or in prison, you can vote. And Washington, D.C. is considering a similar measure. So, you know, again, we needed to get in line with the rest of the country. And our system was so politicized because it depended on what governor you got, whether or not your application for clemency or to get your rights back was going to be granted. And we had a Republican governor. Well, we have had Republican governors for as long as I've been here, which is like 25 years. But anyway, um, Two governors ago, three governors ago, Governor Christ had basically given the right to vote back to like more people than anyone else. I think he gave back in his seventy in his seventy or eight years in office, maybe something like a hundred or one hundred and fifty thousand people their right to vote back. And then Governor Scott, who was the governor, you know, during that time, only gave it back to like, you know, a few thousand, like, you know, four digits versus six, right? So, it, it, and, and he was more conservative and just was not, you know, interested in giving people their rights back. So because this system was so arbitrary, you know, we needed that, that voter initiative so that people knew, like, listen, did I finish my sentence? Am I good to go? Okay, boom, I'm going to go register to vote. 
so when we explained that to people and explained how it was arbitrary, explained how it was out of touch with the rest of the country, explained how if people were, you know, uh, connected to their community, able to have a voice, they're less likely to commit more crimes. So voting rights is directly tied to reduced recidivism. So people really got engaged around this issue. It became a nonpartisan issue and it just became an issue of right and wrong. So 65% of Floridians voted yes on Amendment 4, which was amazing. I was there on election night when it passed. I was heartbroken that, you know, Andrew Gillen was not elected governor, but be that as it may, you know, like we got one victory, right? <laughs> so then in January of 19, it was my honor and privilege to go with several returning citizens for them to register to vote for the first time and to watch grown men cry because yeah. this is the first time for some of them in their entire lives that they would be able to vote. Others, first time in 20 years. And so that was a beautiful experience. And then today I had the honor of, you know, as part I'm on the campaign trail and I was going to one early voting place, but I joined a march of returning citizens who marched to an early polling place to be able, again, some of them for the first time, to be able to cast their vote. So to be able to do the entire thing full circle is just has just been amazing and so fulfilling. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, okay, so since you're here, I gotta pick your brain. Um sure. Just nationally speaking, I know that basically these Black Lives Matter protests have really, I think, taken normal Americans who haven't been paying attention and made them see the urgency and necessity of systemic reform. Like the things that are taking place, the injustices in our system, it, it's at the institutional level. And we have to make a lot of changes to make our society more equitable. So in your view, this is a loaded question, um, but... What do you think are some key things that we can do to actually make our criminal justice system more equitable? I know a lot of people lately have been talking about, you know, cash bail and ending that, but it, it goes deeper than that. So in your view, what are some things that people and activists really should be focusing on? Yeah, so first off, I think it's really critical that activists focus on elections because we're never gonna see the change we seek unless we have elected officials who reflect our values, period, end of story. We can protest as, as the day is long. We can post on social media 19 times a day. It doesn't matter. If we don't have people sitting in those seats that will put the pressure on and respond to the public's requests and concerns, we're not going to move forward. So making sure that you know we're we're keeping an eye on elections, that we're supporting progressive candidates when they run. Because too often it's like, oh, so and so's running. Yeah, that's cool. I'll like her post on Facebook. I'll like his post on Facebook. I'll like their post on on Instagram. But did you send them any money? Like there's Act Blue. There's all these things where you can just use your uh, an app on your phone and just pay right away. Like money is what unfortunately drives campaigns in this country. So if you're not investing in, in candidates who reflect your values, again, you're not going to be able to see elected officials that re reflect your values. So that pre-work has to be done where you're supporting candidates and also building a bench. So run for office yourself. It's hard. It ain't easy. I'm not going to lie to you. But sometimes you know, it's one of those things where, all right, nobody else is going to do it. Fine. I'll do it. Right. Because again, we need people in this struggle who are educated, who are passionate about these issues and want to make a change. Also, I think we need to get more engaged. And again, it's still talking politically and around elections, you know, with your county commission, with your mayor, 
with your city council because again they hold the power when it comes to cha making changes like civilian oversight like deciding how much money goes to different social service uh you know organizations or groups and how much money goes to the police right and I, i'm not going to get into the whole debate should we defend the police or not but the people who have the power to either defund or or reallocate resources or whatever all sit on the dais at the county commission, at the city council, or in, in the mayor's office. So again, that's why it all ties back to elections and voting, right? So th those are the things that I really wanna see people focused on. I want folks to get really engaged in the electoral process, because that's where the change is gonna come. Yeah, and, on and all of them knew that. That's why they fought so hard for us to have the right to vote. That's why they marched. That's why they, you know, endured being bitten by dogs, you know, walking in the scalding heat in August in, in, in Alabama or Mississippi. You know, this is why. So that we can make real systemic change. Yeah, yeah. On that note, um, what can we do to make your victory a sure thing? I think you're going to kill it. Um, but what can we do as viewers if we don't live in the state of Florida? How can we get involved and make sure that you are able to beat this incumbent who doesn't seem to care about justice? Yeah, so um, one of the key things you can do if you can and you have the bandwidth donate uh, This week is the end of the fundraising for this election period end of story So this is my last opportunity to raise money. Uh, my website is www.melbaformiami.com Melba for miami.com if you end up coming in after the fundraising deadline Then one of the ways you can help is just to amplify the message follow me on socials at Melba for Miami and like, share, and comment on our posts. Make sure to share it to your networks. So again, because at the end of the day, everybody knows somebody in Miami. Everybody does, right? So if it's not you directly, it's your cousin, it's your best friend who knows somebody. So that's how we spread the word and encourage people to vote. The election is August 18th. We're doing early voting this week until Sunday. And then election day is next Tuesday. So definitely get the word out. And you know, if you want a phone bank and you want to volunteer to phone bank, you can do that from out of state as well or out of county. So again, hit us up on our website, www.melbaformiami.com. And of course, if you're in Miami, vote number 24, Melba Pearson. Well, thank you so much, Melba. Uh, you are one of the people in this country who is truly making a difference in your state. And I, I think that everyone needs to pay attention to this. It's not just about Floridians. Like if you are able to be successful in Florida, then other people can emulate your model of success in other states. So that's why I think this is so important. This is why I'm invested and we're all rooting for you. So thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it and take good care. <laughs> you too. Hello, everyone. I'm here with another fantastic candidate. His name is David Kim, running in California's 34th Congressional District against corporate Democrat incumbent Jimmy Gomez. And he is here to talk about his campaign. David, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. This is great. I'm excited to have you on because there's been so much excitement and momentum surrounding your campaign. Um, right before we went on the air, you were just talking, we were just talking about uh, the Bernie endorsed Kim campaign that was trending on Twitter. And that's actually how I got um, to know you about your candidacy because there's so many campaigns that are phenomenal, so many people running for Congress that I have like a really overall sense of like who's running. But 
it, it's difficult to keep track, which is a really good problem to have when there's so many people running. But when I see your campaign, what really stood out to me is that you're running on three points, financial freedom, love and justice. And like after browsing your platform, this is my impression. You can correct me if I'm wrong. It looks like if we like extracted all of the best elements from Marianne Williamson, Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang out and we made like a candidate in a lab, that would look like you, correct? Like all yes. of those campaign components are combined. So so talk about those three key points, um, what they mean to you and how you came up with them. Yeah, um, Mike, what's funny though is you kind of took it a step further. So I've actually heard um, that analogy a lot. Oh, David, you remind me of Marianne, Andrew, and Bernie all put together. <laughs> um, but now actually tying it to the financial freedom, love, and justice part, it actually sort of kind of financial freedom, who would you say it is? Andrew Yang, uh, love would be Marianne, justice, Bernie, or, or whichever way you want to characterize or um, categorize that. But I actually didn't think of it in that aspect, but that's pretty cool. So for our campaign, Mike, so um, unlike other campaigns where it's just paid for by and then your name, for me, I just really felt that there's a lot of power and identity in a name, and that's something that I learned from my parents. So our campaign committee name is paid for by David Kim for Congress, Financial Freedom, Love, and Justice for All. The financial freedom part addresses the 35-plus, 40-year income wage stagnation, uh, the disparity in, um, in income, the widening wealth gaps. Uh, with that. What are we doing to address this? Why is it that people have two to three jobs and no matter how much they work, whether it be several months or a few years, they still can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. They barely increase their savings by 50 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever that is. And then they keep on blaming themselves when it's actually something bigger than all of us. It's systemic, but no one's doing anything to address that. So it's starting to talk about what, what, what does financial freedom really look like? Do our people have to wake up every day in deep-rooted chronic economic anxiety every day wondering oh crap how do i make that extra money to pay for rent well how do i do this like why is why are we subjecting our people to that to more suffering increasing upon their suffering um and then having that then be felt amongst their family inside their families and their communities why are we doing that um overall it's not good for the health of our people and that's i think the overall health of our people is something we've neglected too long and it just so happens to be right now when we think about cash and money, money actually means power, power, and it means freedom to give money directly to the people. So it's the financial freedom part. The love part is we have a lot of elected officials saying, hey, we love, we love the people. We're fighting for the people. But it's like, I don't know your status. But when I, when I say to my boyfriend, I say, hey, like, I love you. Or when I say to my mom, hey, I love you. Like, love isn't just a word. There's always action. There's always like, you can see if it's just lip service, if it's all empty, or if the person really loves you, or if you really love the person, whether that be a family member or your partner or whoever. And there's action that needs to show forth for it. But in a time like this, where millions are, don't have insurance, where where in Los Angeles, several hundreds of thousands are about to face eviction, where, where in times like this, like, to me, love from an elected official looks like making sure that the people have access to health healthcare, education, um, to, to housing with a room uh, and a roof, to be able to pay for their basic expenses, to be able to, to, to have 
uh, access to good food. And so ensuring that our people are able to get those needs, that's the love component. So love isn't just a word. Love looks like something. And then the justice part is to ensure that the people's rights are always, the people are prioritized at all costs above corporate interests, above the military industrial complex, above the private prison industrial complex, above all of these corporate interests and party leaderships at play. In order to prioritize the people, we need to really take money out of politics. That's the justice component. We really need to abolish private prisons. That's the justice element. We need to do a criminal justice overhaul. We need to do immigration overhaul. We need to grant amnesty to those in our immigrant communities who are undocumented and have been working for years and contributing to America. Taxing them without representation is tyranny. Why aren't we talking about that? There's so many elements. We need to end our regime change endless wars. That's justice. And, and that way, we're not continuing the oppression of other communities and, and lives abroad, but then also that way we're able to take care of our own people back at home. And so that's the justice part to ensure that we can continue this achieving of financial freedom and love for everyone because none of us are less than another. So so those those were those three components, Mike. Yeah, I like that. And I think that when you kind of like merge all of those together, you kind of see like this really big picture. Uh, when you look at that and you look at your platform, like it is this concern for human beings. I mean, the thing about all of this, like you mentioned that you live in the 10th poorest district in the country on your website. The saddest part is that this is so unnecessary. We live in the wealthiest country on the planet. So all of the suffering that we're seeing, all the deaths due to COVID-19, all of the medical bills, all of this is unnecessary. And that to me is, I think, one of the worst parts about this, like if we were struggling as a country financially and we didn't have the means to take care, care of our own people, I mean, that would be one thing. But the fact is that we we do have the means and we don't. So that's why, you know, finding candidates like you, it, it has honestly made me a little bit less cynical. And I'll admit at first, when I heard Marianne Williamson talking about love, my reaction was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to hear about love because like I'm angry right now. Like there's so much wrong in this country so much that we need to fix like I i'm in the tear everything down mood not good vibes and love but i think that over time that approach really has uh she sold me uh and you sold me like these types of approaches like i think it's important because really when when we only see red when we look at politics in the in the anger sense not republicans you know it it kind of clouds our review and we have to really get back to why we're doing this, uh, in my opinion. And I've tried to recenter myself and it's about love of people, you know, trying to make sure that we take care of our people. So one thing that I want to ask you about, because your district may be disproportionately affected because, you know, a lot of the people who you will be representing don't have the means to take care of themselves. What do we do um, economically speaking with regard to COVID-19? Um, if you were a lawmaker, what would be your immediate um, response? Like, I know that you're going to be balancing so many different things if you're a lawmaker, but what, in your opinion, would you prioritize first? Yeah, well, first I would prioritize um, in regards to there should have been monthly cash relief passed when when the ABC Act came out or, or when different versions of it came out. Now we're in to our fifth month of paying rent. Uh, five and a half months, the the eviction moratorium here ends in California in two days. We have several hundred thousand about to be evicted in Los Angeles. Um, we should have already given them a uh, recurring monthly cash relief. And with, depending on whose version, that's whatever version it is, we should have passed it. And I know that um, <clears throat> um, Senator Markey is... Um, uh, 
is is for the two thousand dollars a month and then retroactively from the beginning of March to onward. Um, so so with that being said, also like that's something that the people need right now because the people, if you're taking money away from the people, how are the people going to survive? And in what ways are they able to sustain themselves when they're actually the local lifelines and the economies of every community that we have? And it's just forgetting like, hey, the economy isn't the stock market. The economy is the people. Like these cities were built by the people. Like, and what are we doing for them? Um, and so it's it's first that component. The second component is people aren't able to get free health care right now or even have health care. So that's the thing. Millions already lost their jobs. We have uh, uh, millions of pre-COVID that didn't have health care. And so we need to ensure like at least and I'm not and and whatever that compromise could be, at least for the entirety of the pandemic, people need Medicare for all right now. Like it just makes sense. That's what needs to happen. And 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 I think because one solution is not the end all solution to anything and that's why we've crafted our platform with I mean not one issue is particularly way important than the other one that the other one's not that important. It's not to say that but but of our flagship issues are UBI wide for basic expenses and to be able to give you some breathing room in your life, to be able to 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 live a life because life isn't here just to toil to the last day that you breathe. Life is here for you to experience um, and and to thrive and to do what you you feel like you've been called to do as as whether it be multiple dreams or purposes that you feel like you have. And with Medicare for all, taking care of healthcare, with the homes guarantee, with the Green New Deal, with jobs. And so in this economy, I mean in this pandemic, we need a rent mortgage cancellation where bills like Representative Ilhan Omar's are being supported and talked about continuously, but we don't hear about that from our from my opponent. We don't hear about that in our district. We hear about general I mean, why support a $100 billion rent relief fund when you could be supporting rent and mortgage cancellation right now when hundreds of thousands and millions are about to be evicted? And so in regards to those are the basic three in terms of uh, increasing PPE, in terms of covering hazard pay and all those other elements. Those are, yes, those are all needed. But these would these would be my top three in terms of if I were in Congress right now and ensuring that people are getting at least these three right now because... I mean, I was just on a, a t just talking with somebody else. I don't know what's going to happen in two days when these evictions start happening, um, and we're unfortunately we're going to have to find out while protesting, and and that's what's going to happen. So it's it's very. I mean, I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but we're in serious times, and so with serious times it comes. Um, we need to strategize better. We need to plan better. We need to organize better. Um, and so our campaign is really set on winning this election. We have a good chance. Um, <clears throat> the incumbent only won a total 52% of the primary election vote. And his challengers, he had four challengers, including myself. The four of us won a collective 48% of the primary vote. And so with there being mail-in ballot voting and and whatnot, and us also increasing the awareness about our campaign, about what it really means to support and reelect a corporate elect corporate incumbent again, what that means and looks like, what is a universal basic income, what is a homes guarantee, why is it that we've we Los Angeles we've had many people experiencing homelessness for years and that increasing, why is it that 
um, we continue to reelect officials, but that hasn't changed. <clears throat> and so I understand, Mike, when we're making calls, people immediately hang up when they think it's a political candidate. And I get it. I'm not offended because our elected officials locally, they're so corrupt in pay-to-play schemes, developer money, everything you can name it. It's so deep. Like, And you continue to vote, you continue to show up, but nothing's really changed. I can see where the apathy and difference comes. And it's and it's yes, it's partly us, the American people, not not being more engaged. But I can see what the cause of that was too. And so I think, though, if but for us, like what we do is we we we're smiling, we're sharing, and it's not and it's really helping each of us realize that if we, the sleeping giant, were to actually wake up as the American people, we could actually bring so much change in in our district, in our communities, like all around, and to realize like. We can't just continue waiting for that savior person or whoever to come along. Like we need to step up ourselves because we're we can actually do it. And once we take that first step, things will start playing into action. Um, so yeah, so that's that's sort of. I know I went from a tangent to answering the COVID nineteen part, but we really just need elected officials that are really hearing what the people's needs are during a pandemic like this and being very fast and swift and and deliberating on that in a timely manner. Yeah, no, I'm glad that you actually kind of um, expanded that because, like, if you're running for Congress, like, you have to be able to speak at length about these issues, and you demonstrated that, and I think that one thing that really sets you apart and candidates like you apart from the establishment is that you actually can empathize with people who are feeling apathetic about the political process and even turned off by it because, you know, you do see this general sense of, well, I want to check out of electoral politics because it's not working. I don't want to vote. And even I felt that instinct that I had to fight, you know, earlier this year when Joe Biden started to push ahead. I'm sure we all felt that way, right? So it's like, I, I think that the fact that you're able to empathize, it, it puts you in a unique situation to where you're able to communicate with people who feel the same way. Because like when you look at individuals within the establishment, like your opponent, Jimmy Gomez, Gomez, you know, they have no idea why people are so turned off by the political process. Like some of the comments that I've seen um, more, you know, from out of touch elite celebrities is how could any millennial be upset with Joe Biden as the nominee? Look at his platform. He has the most progressive platform in American history. But I mean, if you ask them to name three policies on that platform, that was written by consultants, he probably couldn't. So I mean, like, things aren't changing. And where things are changing for the better, they're not changing fast enough. So I'm so glad that you're able to speak to that. And you know, people know about that. And they know that you're aware of this. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more about Jimmy Gomez, because this is an individual who he is losing popularity. And he just he he hasn't met the moment. Now, I alluded to the fact earlier in this interview that he is a corporate Democrat. But can you expand upon that? Because during COVID-19, if you're not there for your constituents when they need you the most, I think that that really speaks to a failure in leadership and speaks to the necessity of replacing him. So talk through, in your opinion, why you think he needs to be ousted, because a lot of people don't necessarily know who Jimmy Gomez is. He's not like one of these high profile Democrats, you know, that's a rising star with a lot of name recognition. So people may not be aware. But in terms of like the need for your future constituents, how has he failed in your opinion? Oh, um, it's going to be a long list. I'm I'm sure. <laughs> well, I mean, to, to me, to, I mean, <clears throat> just to make clear. I don't know him personally. I've never met him. 
and I'm sure he's a, he's a great guy and, and a great friend to a lot of people. But when it comes to legislating on the behalf of 700,000 people in your district, it becomes a very serious matter. So if you don't have <clears throat> if you don't have a plan on what your first 100 days of Congress or what your first two years will look like, why are you in office? Um, and what does that look like? Like, what are you standing for? Um, we need to see that in an elected official and a representative. And before I go to the corporate aspect, <clears throat> I think the corporate aspect is just a, an example of what I'm getting at, is just this lack of conviction, this this <clears throat> this urgency that's that's lighting a fire inside of you where everything you do is is for your community right now because it's really a life or death for a lot of people um, in terms of finances and debt and where they're going and and to realize that this job and position isn't a position to be taken lightly at all that if it were a job at a, like all of us had had jobs but we understand that if we performed below a certain standard or certain levels of expectations that our time would be very up would be up and so what what got us to to shape up and do our jobs is is that fact and realization and knowing that. But because our elected officials <clears throat> continue to be reelected, continue to not be challenged, continue to be elected into an office by campaign and corporate funds, there's no there's no measure of accountability or oh I should actually be doing what I was called to do or a reminder system in place um, because we have all of this corporate money. And so there's there's also the campaign finance part of that where um, for a community or a district, no representative should be determined based on how much corporate money they were able to fundraise. Like, that's ridiculous. Shouldn't somebody that's elected from the community be elected based upon their platform, their visionary ideals, what they envision and, and, and their track record and what they've done and how they spent their time and what they've learned? Like, isn't isn't that more all more important when it comes to electing somebody into office? And so um, even and and so these are these bigger things where we have they're not able to really take firm stances on policies for the people. And an example of that is um, and that's also because they're tied to their corporate interests because they just basically are puppets. And and when I say corporate Dems or corporate Republicans, I think they're all the same because. In the, at the end of the day, you're just part of the status quo and you're enabling the transfers of wealth that are happening between the masses of working people to the few and privileged that are, that are wealthy. Um, and even in this pandemic, we've seen the biggest transfers of wealth happen uh, to the wealthy and the privileged and the few, where this oligarchy doesn't is is doesn't seem like it's going to be ending soon if the people really don't rise up. And so... Um, the thing about uh, my opponent, uh, Jimmy, is he's not taking firm stances on issues that hurt and that hurt the district the most. Yes, he might have done this and that, but where are we in our people experiencing homelessness? Why is it that we have 45,000 brothers and sisters living unhoused? Why is it that people continue to live in financial distress? What have you done during the seven, eight years that you've been in office, including your assembly years? Has our district gone better? No. And it's not, and I, I know it sounds unfair to put it on one person, but if you're in a situation where Los Angeles is known for being in local corrupt politics with a pay-to-play developer scheme, and, and if, if Los Angeles is known for its homelessness crisis and the lack of affordable housing, and um, and and that wouldn't that be your main goal in fixing and addressing hurt, 
addressing the areas where people are hurting the most. And so when you're not doing that, either it, it makes you think, is this person really connected and hearing the constituency and the communities or even able to relate to the suffering or is even making any effort and engaging in regular office hours for the constituents or regular town halls? And when you look at it, the questions are all no. He hasn't fought for housing legislation of any kind. He hasn't taken a stance on recurring monthly cash relief. He hasn't taken a stance on rent and mortgage cancellation. Um, and in all of these things, it's like, come on, like, we're supposed to be one of the arguably the most progressive districts in the nation, but you're not like you say you're progressive, but I don't really see it. I don't see you being big and bold. And I'm not saying you have to scream and do everything all day, like not in a physical sense, but I don't see that. I don't see that 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 conviction, that passion where you really want to fight for the people happening. Um, why is it that you're doing town hall sessions right before re-election time? Why is, it, why is it that you're doing it once a year? Isn't it something where if you're representing the people, it's not you doing your job and giving the people an update. You're doing the job with the people. You're listening to the people in terms of what are your concerns and issues? What are you going through? What's your suffering? Oh, are those are your ideas? Okay, let me go back to DC and this is what I'll try to fight for. That's the conversation that should be happening, but it's not happening with him. It's not happening with all of these corporate incumbents that are in office right now. And that's the thing. We need to bring that focus around to the people where it's not just lip service anymore. And one of the things that prevents them from being able to carry out their promises, to be able to carry out where it's not like my opponent, where he's like, I'm for Medicare for all guys, but then his biggest donors are pharmaceutical companies and healthcare companies. Are they for Medicare for all? No. Talk with your donors first or cut them off. Um, I'm for free education. It's like, but, but your donors are student debt collectors. What are you talking about? Like, what are you saying? Why are you at Black Lives Matter, police, police brutality, protests or labeling them as police brutality when you're taking money from police union packs and private prisons. Why are you doing this? Why are you saying that you're leading and speaking at USPS rallies when you're taking money from its competitor? And it's not to say that they can't coexist. Yeah, they can. But when you're taking money from both conflicting conflicts of interest, like how are you going to say that you're fighting in the best interests of USPS as so as you're claiming? And so I think it's just a deeper realization of like, what are our elected officials doing? Yes, we talk about being progressive on social issues, but what does that mean on a practical level as well? Like, are we putting our money where our mouth is? Why do we continue to uh, fund the Pentagon as it is? And I am actually, I give, I give him props for voting for the 10% decrease. And a lot of people have been saying it's because um, I mean, it's re-election time, and, and what, that's, that's one of the benefits, Mike. Us running for office is to push them closer to the needle to do their job, and that's what he's feeling, and that's a great outcome of it, and, and, and that's a great thing. But for I think right now it's for us to really realize, like, what's going on? Bernie called it out in the early 90s when he said, hey, guys, like, we're being run by an oligarchy, and an oligarchy is one where just the few and the privileged are controlling everyone. That's what's going on right now. We are being controlled through poverty, through through money right now. Why is it that UBI, which seems something that could be dressed so easy and simple, where bam, it goes through your maybe set up a separate direct federal bank account where it goes separately just straight to you, where that happens and you're able to get instant access to that. Why is that something so hard? Because it bypasses the government, it bypasses hands that can make money off of it, that can all of these bureaucratic types of things, 
it goes straight to the people and that would be giving the people too much freedom, too much money, too much power. It's not even too much money, but too much power because when the people start waking up, we know that with all of these protests that have been happening, even within communities, when people start waking up, they know how to organize and protest. And so imagine if each of us were given pre-COVID $1,000 a month, this would give us the leverage to say, hey, I don't want those kind of minimum job uh, horrible working conditions. I don't want to be taken advantage of like that. Um, I, I, I will be able to now start for a different career, look for that. It would empower even labor unions because now they have a bigger leverage power in that sense as well. So it would empower everyone and, and give that extra hope and give that extra uh, assistance but the thing that's going against it is that's not the priority of our elected officials right now. That's not their priority. Their priority is to their corporate donors. Their priority is to passing a $1,200 stimulus check for the people and then passing huge transfers of wealth that they won't talk about in their town halls to you because they don't. They probably didn't even read those pages um, because they were fumbling just to even give you what the benefits of the $1,200 stimulus check were uh, because they barely read the bill. Um, I've seen my opponent stumble trying to answer very basic questions about um, major highlights of a bill. So it's like, why are you not doing your job in Congress? And so um, I know I kind of beat around the bush. I mean, not beat around the bush, but answer that in so many different ways. But with this corporate incumbent idea, it's so dangerous. It's It changes everything. Um, why is it that corporate interests like all a lot of his corporate donors were bailed out first in this pandemic why why do we continue why did we give away 20 why are we giving away 20 20 plus billion dollars to defense contractors um in a pandemic like this um and yes they might say on the on the superficial on the surface level it's COVID 19 related but if you see how the payment scheme and what they could have done to do all of that no it's just another handout like, why are we not calling out these handouts to corporate interests, but then talking about where are we going to get the money when we're when we're talking about prioritizing the people? And it's this brainwashing and manipulation that we've also undergone as the American people right now. And so um, the corporate, uh, I think the biggest thing that in addition to proposing all of these flagship policies that are prioritizing people, we really need to take money out of politics because we can't have um, our elected officials pledging their allegiance to corporate interests, to the few in party leadership that are controlling the entire Congress and House, and all of that really needs to stop. Yeah, I think that really you hit the nail on the head in calling out the conflict of interest. I think that a lot of people, they they know that there's this you know they have the sense of money in politics being an issue but like really directly tying votes and specific legislative actions to specific donors that is something that i think is missing and i'm glad that you did that because it's important like when we live in this late stage capitalist society and we have commodified every single sector of society healthcare education even human beings you know we are viewed as commodities now with regard to our labor like you you have to speak to the money angle with regard to governing. Otherwise, you're going to miss the mark. You're not going to be able to diagnose the problems, the many of which we face. Um, so I, I think that by now, people who are watching this, they're already sold on you. Um, I think there's something there for everyone. You have a housing guarantee, Green New Deal, Medicare for All, UBI. There's a lot. And I think that we need someone like you who has this like robust holistic approach to politics because you know a lot of people oftentimes they have like their one or two pet issues i have mine like mine is medicare for all 
and uh, climate change, you know, Green New Deal. But I think you really like you you pay equal time to all of these issues, which I think is super important because you can't really leave out anything. There's so much like we need criminal justice reform. We need uh, to take immediate action on climate change. If, you know, when you and I are older, we're going to be able to, uh, you know, survive and not see more of an apocalypse. So, I mean, like we need so much action right now. So what can we do to help you out? Um, Can we phone bank for you for can we canvas? Basically, can you tell my viewers what we can do to pitch in? Because I think we will all want to see you in Congress. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, thank you so much again, Mike, for giving me this platform. Uh, for those like for grassroots and down ballot candidates, and for this particular campaign season, we um, it was so amazing just to see so many people run and also see some victories with that with Jamal, uh, future representative Jamal uh, Bowman and uh, Cory Bush and and many others. But it's 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 continuing this movement and so uh realizing that we are going up against a corporately funded incumbent who has a campaign war chest of a million dollars and uh we are grassroots 100 percent people powered so donations help but i totally understand if you're if you're having tough times then don't donate we have volunteering opportunities as well there's other ways you can support as well so just visit davidkim2020.com uh you can go ahead and find volunteering opportunities and phone baking opportunities there All right. Well, thank you so much, David Kim, running in uh, California's 34th congressional district against Jimmy Gomez. We will be watching and rooting for you. Great. Thank you so much, Mike. Well, that is everything. I don't know how much uh, time we spent on that, but what are we uh, over three, uh, three hours long? Yeah. (laughs) If you listen that long, then I appreciate the fact that um, you are not um, irritated by my uh, voice that long. Thank you. <laughs> but as usual, um, we're not going to end the show uh, without thanking all of the people who make it possible, our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members who help us not just to survive but thrive. You all are absolutely crucial to our growth and success, so thank you all so much. I think I've covered everything. Um, we'll uh, get back to it next week. Take care, everyone. I'm Mike Figueredo. This has been The Humanist Report. Have a good week. You know... You... You... You know... You know the, you know the thing, thing. You're getting nervous, man, man.